0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 430 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Aaron Heller. Now, Aaron is a veteran firefighter starting off in the volunteer field, working his way through to career, ultimately reaching the position of chief. He is also the founder of On Scene Training, so there was so much to discuss here when it came to mental health, realism in training, fitness standards, and much, much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find And this is a free library, a free resource for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Aaron Heller. Enjoy. Well, Aaron, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Show podcast today.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it today. It's, it's, it's a great opportunity.
0: Beautiful. Well, um, the first question I'd love to ask, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: I, am, uh, I live in a little town called Wrightstown, New Jersey in Burlington County, which is very close to the geographic center of the state. Uh, if I look out my back door, I can basically see McGuire Air Force Base. Uh, The runways to McGuire are right there.
0: Brilliant. Well, starting from the very beginning chronologically then. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Cool. So I was uh, born in uh, Toms River, New Jersey in Ocean County. Um, I grew up in a little town called New Egypt, New Jersey, which is um, uh, literally kind of the center of nowhere and the center of everywhere. So an hour I could be in Philadelphia or an hour I could be in Manhattan. So uh, or, you know, 35, 40 minutes on the beach. Uh, great place to grow up. Um, my parents uh, lived there. Well, my mom still lives on the same piece of property. Uh, my dad moved there in 1937. His family bought the property and, and had a farm. And, uh, and I've got one sister who uh, is, is kind of a she's, she's been a big role model in my life. Uh, she's five and a half years older than me, and uh, uh, it's it's pretty cool. I, I, I got my fire department start because of my sister, so it's it's pretty neat.
0: Beautiful. What, what did your parents
1: do? So my parents, <laughs> it's crazy. My parents own um, a flea market, and my dad owned a junkyard as well at the flea market, basically. It's, uh, now we've sold off a little property, but it's a 33-acre piece of land. It was 42 when I was a kid. Um, has over 40 individual buildings on it that they rent out to vendors. Uh, buildings that were actually moved in from Fort Dix. They were a lot of barracks buildings and then some cottages from down the shore and stuff. And and uh, merchants rent them out and sell their wares. And uh, so it was a really really unique upbringing. And uh, we lived right there. My mom still lives on the same property. She's 86 and still runs the business. Really. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, obviously, uh, I think I've heard you kind of touch on this in other interviews as well, but growing up in a scrapyard, I'm assuming, gave you a pretty good head start when it came to extrication. It really did. I
1: Gosh, I can't thank my dad enough for making me do all the work that I hated doing when I was a kid. You know, from literally from the time I was 9 or 10, he had me helping him, whether it was holding a flashlight while he was working on something or handing him tools. Uh, and when probably by the time I was 10 or so, I was able to operate heavy equipment, forklifts, trucks, front end loaders. Um, we were just busy plowing snow here uh, last week. And it gave me flashbacks because he had like a 1950s road grader that he taught me how to run. So at really 11, 12 years old, I was running a road grader to clear out the flea market for him. And uh, so, yeah. And then the tools and the you know running torches in the junkyard and band saws and, bandsaws and I had no idea that all of this would become such an important part of my life, really the rest of my life in the emergency services.
0: Now, so. and was it was it a pretty manual childhood, a pretty physical childhood in the scrapyard? Because I grew up on a farm, so I was, you know, shoveling shit and all kinds of stuff growing up.
1: <laughs> same same exact thing, man. Same thing. It was, uh, you're rolling 55-gallon drums full of copper, you're cutting it up and making it, cleaning it, so to speak. and and preparing loads to go to other junkyards and uh and we didn't my dad wasn't the kind of guy who would invest a lot of money in good equipment (laughs) so we never had anything new we had third fourth hand stuff so you did a lot of of bully work you know a lot of stuff by hand and and uh yeah i was in great shape until i started getting older
0: (laughs) (laughs) well aside from the actual working you know with your dad did you
1: play sports i did i did i was i was a sports fanatic i'm still kind of a sports fanatic um I played baseball and football, um, and and I was a pretty good baseball player, had some pretty good opportunities, um, loved it, loved every aspect of the game. Um, and then in high school, I blew a knee out, and that pretty well ended going on to the next level. Uh, I had had some great conversations with some D1 and D2 coaches, and when I blew my knee up, they all went away. Because... <laughs> You
0: know, back in the
1: '80s, they just couldn't fix you like they can today. Yeah. So, well, when looking
0: know. back now, obviously, you know, you've you've kept yourself in shape, as you mentioned before we start recording. There's been some, you know, troughs and peaks. Um, but one thing that's interesting, being from another country coming to the U.S., is we don't tend to have the the same level of performance, you know, in most of our kids at school age, um, you know, that you do here. You know, there's that kind of. Uh, canal going from through schools to college to professional if you make it and so you don't have a lot of really screwed up 18 year olds with i could have been great stories like you do here and that's not to be um, yeah. patronizing or anything but it, it strikes me as you know, that we could maybe do the tra- you now strength and conditioning and training a little better so we're not breaking our children before they even have a chance to be adults so when you look back now were there any things you think that contributed to you getting a uh, basically a career-ending injury
1: I played with reckless abandon in everything I did. You know, if if I was an undersized linebacker in football, uh, I caught from the time I was about eight years old. I was a catcher in baseball. I caught and, and pitched. Uh, and the only reason I pitched, I really threw. I didn't pitch. I just could throw really hard. So they let me pitch. Um, but I played with really reckless abandon, and I injured myself plenty of times because of it. Um, probably didn't have the best coaching that they have today. I mean, my coaches were good. They taught us the game, but we didn't know really fitness. We really didn't know, um, you know, how to take care of our bodies the way these guys do today. Um, The the only other thing that I see today versus back then, we were multi-sport athletes. All my friends, they, you know, they wrestled, they played football, baseball, basketball, uh, or ran track, whatever. And So we didn't see the same level of injuries that you see today as far as the repetitive motion injuries. Um, And I know I'm living with one now from my fire service career that one day I'm sure I'll end up having a fix. I've got a bad – I get a lot of pain in my right hip over the years. And when I went to the doctor, they explained to me that, well, you get out – you've been riding the front seat of that same fire truck all those years. And between your body weight and the weight of the equipment, you come down on your right hip every time it's a repetitive motion injury and I never thought about that. Um, I, I went through it with my son. My son was a, a very good high school baseball player, uh, pretty good wrestler and blew his arm out wrestling his senior year right before he had a lot of really good baseball offers and ended up having Tommy John surgery. And then you look at all these kids with Tommy John surgery and you go, oh my God, they're, we're, we're throwing too many pitches We're it's these repetitive motion things. And I, I really do, his was a freak injury wrestling that just shouldn't have happened. But um, I really do think that the multi-sport athlete is is a finer tuned athlete, better trained athlete in a way because you're not just using your arm. You're not just using, you know, whatever. It just seems to me, and, and that's from a layman just who played a lot of sports.
0: Yeah, well, I can back it up because I've had a lot of high-level coaches from all arenas and they've said exactly that. And a lot of the the most uh, resilient Um, sports people that we see you know we're footballers wrestlers you know baseball players like you said and even in um, you know sport that I love MMA the the sparring there's a lot of um, they pull back a lot on the heavy sparring now it's light sparring pad work and most of the heavy contact is actually in the ring or octagon or wherever they're fighting so I think we're we're realizing that less is more especially with with us with the the older tactical athlete you know you can't Blow yourself up, you know, six seven days a week. You've got to understand that rest and recovery will actually pay more dividends than overtraining.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's for sure. But my 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 time in athletics has absolutely led me into my time as a fireman. I mean, absolutely. There are days where I was going through training or, or in a bad situation, and I could still hear a couple of those coaches' voices in my ear: "That you don't quit. This is your team." You got to give it all, get through it, you know, (laughs) and a lot of other words. (laughs) And (laughs) and I, you know, I carry that into my life. And and, um, I've explained that to my son, who's actually in a probie school right now. And he's had some really tough days physically uh, because he's a big kid. But those lessons that he learned through his wrestling career, especially, I think you got to apply to your to your career in the fire service and into life.
0: Yeah, well, wrestling's a sport I definitely see as a common denominator of mental toughness. A lot of people that have been successful in all kinds of realms, you know, started there, and I think part of it is, as we say, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. There's nothing more uncomfortable than having your body turn into a pretzel with your face in someone's junk. So, yeah. and then the weight cuts and all the other things. But yeah, I mean, I think those kind of sports that really hold a mirror up to you, whether it's whether you're working for the team or individually, if you're stuck in a you know confined space, prop you know, you, that's, that's a great training tool to prepare you for our professions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it was, it's been, it's been a great, um, it's been a great precursor for the fire service to me. And, and then I, I played, you know, I played some softball for years after that and, and I had a ball doing. I loved it. In fact, I'd love to go back to it when time permits and, and my body's in a little better position to do it, I think.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to get into some of the contributing factors to why we get beat up in the in the job, but we'll talk about that later. Um, sure. You mentioned about your sister being integral in your journey into the fire service, so tell me about that story.
1: Yeah, my sister, uh, Talba, she's five and a half years older than me. Um, when we were kids, we despised each other, I think, because I was the pain-in-the-ass little brother, and she was the bitchy older sister, <laughs> and... Uh, but as we got older, we really we really got close, and, and we've we've got a great relationship now. Uh, she definitely holds me accountable, and um, and she's she's really really a bright person, um, somebody I have tremendous faith in. But she, uh, at a really young age, she married. She left the house against my parents' wishes. The whole nine yards, how that goes. She married into a firefighting family from a little town. Uh, her her ex husband now, but. Uh, At the time, her husband was a a volunteer officer and and ended up becoming chief. His whole family had been chief of that little fire department in in Juliastown, New Jersey. Um, And she went through probie school. She went through fire academy, local fire academy in that county. And um, I used to hang out there a lot and I thought it was kind of cool. You know, I thought, oh, that's pretty neat. And uh, so I joined as a junior member when I was 14 years old and they would let me do damn near anything. I was really, child labor laws probably existed, but they sure didn't pay attention to them. And, um, the first fire I ever went into, I was backing her up on a fire at a hotel and she was on the line and I was behind her. I was probably, I don't know, 15 or 16 years old, you know, pull up boots, red ball gloves and, uh, and a long coat. And, and we didn't even get issued gear. Even the older members didn't get issued gear, your gear hung on the rig. And when you got into the open cab jump seat, it was hanging on like a, uh, there was a dog clip for a helmet and the coat and boots were stuffed in between the, the handlebars basically. So, uh, I followed her into my first fire and I got the bug and, and I went to fire school thinking, well, if she could do it, I could do it. And if baseball doesn't work out for me, you know, maybe when I, I, I really assumed at that time I'd go on to college, play baseball, and then never thought I'd be a big leaguer, but, uh, maybe I could do something else. And, uh, and, and that was it. And my dad wanted us to kind of run the flea market when when it was time. And we my sister and I both knew that that wasn't what we wanted to do for life, you know, and it wasn't our end goal. And, and to be honest, I didn't think it could ever support what I wanted in life down the road. Um, so I said, this is going to be my next thing. And so I, I went to fire school and I, I was in and out of a uh, firefighter one program. Before I was out of high school and uh, but she really she went on. She was a dispatcher. She was a a public safety communicator dispatcher for the county there uh, for thirty five and a half years. I think it was or thirty four and a half years. She just retired about a year and a half ago. And um, really, really, she had a hell of a career. And um, she really that's what got me started without her. I don't know what I would have
0: done. Yeah. That's amazing. We'll just segue on her for a second. Dispatch are kind of, you know, the unsung heroes of, of what we do, you know. And when I talk about sleep deprivation, when I talk about, um, you know, daylight exposure, circadian rhythms, all these things, and you think about the dispatchers that show up when it's dark, spend 12 hours in a dark room and leave when it's dark. Sitting in a chair the whole time, you know, the high stress with zero movement. It's a very, very kind of toxic environment to the human body when you think about it. What was her experience mentally and physically through her career? Uh, I I tell you, she,
1: um, as she got older, certainly she had two kids. So that, you know, that doesn't help. That was tough. She, She never got the chance to physically do a lot of the things she wanted to. I'm sure workout wise and all that because the job grinded her. It really did grind her down. It ground her down pretty hard. And, um, she has two daughters, uh, and she, she really raised them pretty, I wouldn't say without their dad, but she raised them an awful lot. And, um, she, she dedicated a lot to everybody but herself. Um, and the job, she was married to the job as well. Like the stuff she, she worked police and fire, uh, predominantly police side of it. And, um, some of the calls that she dealt with you know the suicides and the the, my child's not breathing calls and and the murders that hey i just shot my wife and you know i'm just telling you that kind of thing like she lived it all for over 35 years and um yeah i mean i know she had some some issues with some of the stuff she she absolutely got some counseling and therapy to help her through it um and i guess it made her a stronger person overall but it ground her down for a while. And, and the day she retired, um, you know, it was kind of cool. She, she worked her last shift. I had been in American Samoa for a month teaching.
0: Oh, an awesome made, place to teach.
1: Yeah, not a, not a bad gig, I can tell you. <laughs> good gig when you can get it, and, and some of the coolest people. But uh, that's a whole other aspect of life. But um, I flew home and uh, made sure that when when I got home, uh, my flight was landing in time for me to get from Newark Airport down to see her on her very last shift. So uh, it, was really, it was really cool. But uh, um, the, they are unsung heroes. You know, we bitch about them all the time at work. We have some dispatchers who I, I want to go up there and strangle. <laughs> and then we have some of them that bail us out over and over and over again, just like every other job. But theirs is uh, they don't get paid worth a damn. Um and they they're ground down. They work hard jobs.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And it should be a, it's, it's something I talk about a lot when police and fire don't get on, or city and county, or dispatchers and operations. It's just it's crazy. It's one of those things where leadership needs to make sure that there is a good commu- you know, communication. Because I've had calls where. And, you know, a lot of times it's not even the dispatcher. It's probably what they were told. But, you know, you go to a hemorrhage and, yeah, the guy's hemorrhaging because he just shot himself in the face. So, you know, knowing there's a firearm on scene is a little different. Um, But, yeah, there's also times, as you said, where just proactively they're maybe trying to stop dispatching units that don't need to be woken up. You know, they're they're thinking ahead. They're using their brain. And there's other ones that have no problems re-dispatching someone that's just, you know, worked a 14-hour fire. So, yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from. Right. Well, then, um, so you, you went through fire school. So kind of lead me through your first you know, few years in the fire service and then how, again, your, your fitness and your scrapyard um, childhood factored into to succeeding at that point.
1: Yeah. And they all really do tie together pretty tightly. Um, so I graduated high school. Uh, again, I wasn't going away to play ball like I thought I was. So but my dad was very, very strong on education. You're going to get an education. You're going to go to college. You know, you're, he was a highly educated guy, self-educated. Um, literally, went to college simply for the social aspect of it because he grew up on a farm with just his father, uh, and his father was the local doctor. He was a Bellevue-educated doctor in New York City. Um, so, but it was just the two of them, and my dad needed a social life, so he went to college for it. After he met my mom, he only had, I think, a couple classes left for a degree. He dropped out and and when they all said, go back, why would you do that? And he said, well, I I know I've learned what I want to learn from college and I got out of it what I wanted. I don't care about a degree or paper. I don't need it. And uh, it was it was amazing because this is a man who wrote articles um, in a lot like Reason magazine, uh, wrote for the Foundation for uh, Economic Education. Uh, He was highly, highly educated. And you would have never known it like to see him bumming around a junkyard or the flea market, you know, wearing ripped up jeans and an old pair of boots. You would never have known that this was a, a complete intellect who Mensa had tried to recruit at one point, um, but he never would have led on to it, you know. Um, so to us, he pushed and he said, you're going to go to college, get a business degree, do whatever. Um, so instead of a business degree, I signed up for fire science classes. At Mercer County College because at this point I realized I'm not going to be a businessman I want to be a fireman and I joined the local fire department when I turned 18 in in New Egypt where I lived Um, and it was it was like that became kind of my life Um, I was going to college I was working in the junkyard for my dad and um, and I was running volunteer calls in New Egypt and they were a unique community and, and still are a unique community. That's a 44 square mile town. As a kid growing up there, there were maybe 2,000 people and it was all farms and you know, we were, we were country bumpkins for the most part. Um, and now it's probably 10,000 people and a lot. it's a bedroom community to the cities. A lot of the farms are preserved but they're not farming them anymore. Um, but uh, the fire company itself, they were running 80, 90 calls a year but they drilled hard. They had really nice equipment. They really worked hard, and they were considered kind of the go-to group in our region. You know, if you had a fire, you were calling New Egypt because you knew you got working firemen. And uh, and they were they were hardcore. And, and it was a bunch of old blue-collar, tough dudes. And uh, when I came in, uh, I I took a few lumps uh, in the beginning, and uh, but. They saw that that's what I wanted to do. And they knew that I could already operate equipment and things. And I already came to them with a firefighter one certificate. So they were happy because they didn't have to invest much in me. You know, hey, kid, here's some gear that we had in the closet. And uh, you know how to ride the rigs. Get on. Um, So that was that was really my start. And um, some great mentors there. There was a, um, a chief there named Steve Lachance. And he was this old Vietnam vet Air Force guy who had uh, been repairing airplanes when they got shot up in Nam to get them back to repair and and he was just this crusty son of a bitch he really was tough and i played ball actually with his son and he would he'd be the guy behind behind the backstop cussing at the umpire at little league games literally (laughs) and and i was catching in his son's pitching and i'm like oh my gosh i'm learning a whole new education
0: back here vocabulary
1: (laughs) oh yeah but he kind of took me under under his wing to a degree and um i learned a lot from him and, and he was tough on me very tough on me um and there were a few other guys there so it was it was great we went to a lot of fires for a little company you'd run 100 runs but you'd go to a whole pile of fires because back then everybody went to each other's runs um, and, and, you only went on work, you know, you didn't have a thousand fire alarms and two jobs, you know, when people called nine one one back then there was something going on. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and uh, as I progressed there, I, I became a, a driver really quick because of my, they needed drivers and I had the ability to do it from driving trucks for the junkyard. Um, so they taught me how to pump and I went to pump school. And by the time I was 19 or 20, I could operate everything they had. And um, they created, actually, they didn't have captains then. They only had, the the line was fireman, uh, engineer, who basically just took care of the trucks and was in charge of maintenance of the apparatus. And then uh, you had second assistant chief, first assistant chief, and chief. And that was it. Uh, They actually created captain positions for me and a couple other young guys that they thought they needed to mentor us up and they needed to give us a, a learning spot, so to speak. And uh, so I became one of them and, and I moved through the ranks and I ended up becoming the chief there uh, way, way too young. Like, uh, I, I totally unprepared. I was 24 years old and became chief of the department because there was a kind of a vacuum in the old guys and the young guys and nothing in between. And uh, I ended up being chief, and I served six years as as the volunteer fire chief there, which whole another thing that opened unbelievable doors in my life.
0: So with so. with that, there's something that's interesting to me, like you said, back in the eighties, you know, you have a town that's that's very rural. Um, you can kind of see why there's a volunteer element to the fire service. But what you see now in 2021 are densely populated urban and suburban towns that still have volunteers. So what is your view on drawing the line and, you know, getting to the point where we're not relying on butchers and bakers and candlestick makers to drop everything and come respond that we actually, as taxpayers, fund towns so that we can have a fully functional professional career fire department?
1: Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough decision to make. Um, I I'm a firm believer that there comes a point where you have to really look in the mirror as a fire department, as a volunteer fire department or, or even a career. Are we are we delivering what they feel we're supposed to deliver? Like, you know, or when we pull up, are we actually able to do this or have we just created a smoke screen so to speak? Um, and there comes a point where we're no longer getting out in good response times uh, we're staffing the rig with one and two guys and they, they they're very well-meaning but we know that that's not proper staffing to really get all those tasks completed at, a, at an incident um, so I think that's where we have to we have to really swallow our pride as volunteers and say we're not getting this done uh, and and now we need to go to the town fathers or, who, or, or whoever it may be and and say you know listen this is what we need we we at least need some help during the day or we're not getting out at night so we need a night crew and you know go through those paces Um, but I really think it it comes down to our competency our capabilities and then in the end it's going to come down it's data driven really Uh, when we started doing it where I work and I know we'll talk about that down the road it was all data driven when we went from just having paid drivers, we were called to, okay, now we're going to put two on a rig. Now we're going to put three on a rig and now we're going four on a rig around the clock. It was all about our response times, our incident numbers that just kept going up as the community developed. And at some point you have to just say, listen, we're we're not doing this. This isn't working. The problem that you get, obviously, like everything is how are we going to budget this? How are we going to finance this operation? Here in the Northeast, you know, our taxes are through the roof, you know, uh, and firefighters make a lot of money here. It, there's there's no bullshit in it. We make a lot of money. They take a lot of our money in, in the same vein, but the town looks at it as, okay, what's what's the magic number and how can we save? And while well, we got away with volunteers all this time, they're willing to do it for free. That's good enough. So I think Having leadership that is willing to address it is, is, is probably priority number one. Having all your data together and, and really being able to show make a really good presentation as to why we need to start drifting to another dimension, so to speak, uh, is key. And then who is who is that going to be that lightning bolt or that lightning rod who's going to take the shot from the public, who's going to take the lightning from the town council, or the mayor, or whoever, or even from other volunteer companies who are jealous of what's going on. Oh, look at you! You guys want to be tough guy in New York, you know? You're trying to do this all at once. Yeah, ha- somebody has to have some serious balls that stands up in front of everybody, and is willing to kind of be the sacrificial lamb to a point, but also be a really good PIO, you know? Somebody who's who's a fairly eloquent speaker, somebody who's passionate, and and kind of go from there. Um, but it's a big problem. And I, I mean, go to rural America. You know, with, with on-scene training, I've gotten the chance to teach in a lot of little places, little – you would never – shit, I'd never even heard of some of these places. How do they find the finances to do it? And even the knowledge to do it sometimes is lacking. And, you know, you'll get these consultants that come in and tell you all how it all should be, you know. And anybody with a briefcase 50 miles away in a suit and tie, you're an expert. So – it's a, it's a slippery slope. It really is. Um, in New Egypt, we did it. I can tell you, I, when I got out as chief, I became a, a fire commissioner, which is an elected spot there. Um, you're on a board of fire commissioners. It's kind of like being on a school board. You're in charge of all the funding and, and major decisions for the fire department. And every, every fire commissioner meeting when I had been the volunteer chief, I asked for one paid guy. Every meeting for six years straight. I went on a record to cover my own ass and say, we're having a little trouble getting out during the day. Just give me a driver during the day. And the board would not think about it. No, no, no. We don't need to do that. You know, we're not we're not upsetting the Apple cart and we're not raising taxes. And you know, God, paying a guy thirty grand back then would have been like, holy crap. But um, over time when I became a commissioner, I started it right back up again. And it took a couple of years and we did. And now they have, um, they have a day crew and they run EMS 24, seven because the, the community evolved and the organization had to evolve with it. Um, ran into a lot of bumps, but, but, and they still are navigating bumps, but it works.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's so interesting being, you know, being in this profession and understanding completely why there are volunteers. Because we would all do it for free. Uh, yeah, Well, most of us, at least. <laughs> the ones that didn't chase the benefits and the uh, the facade of, you know, so many days off, which actually is smoke and mirrors. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but it is. It's, it's amazing and it's so rewarding. But when you take a step back and think, would you ask any other profession to do it for free, people would laugh in your face. And so, you know, I, I had a great conversation with a guy, Justin Kingsley, who's um, from Montreal and he... Is in the, like, public relations space. So he does promotion. He just did, um, the, uh, Montreal soccer team's logo. He worked with, uh, Georges and Pierre, the fighter. Um, and uh, we were talking about the, the brand of police, of fire. And I told him, like, you know, we still get asked, why is there a fire engine at the EMS call when we do an EMS in Florida since the seventies? Clearly we're not <laughs> delivering, you know, the message very well. So, and one of the interesting things that he talked about was, when people talk about things like this they talk about costs He said that's the wrong word to use it's, it's value is it's saying when we put this in place here are all the ways that the community is going to be better here are all the ways that we can deliver the service but if we just talk about dollars and cents the taxpayer immediately bulks and was like oh more money no we don't want to do it
1: yeah yeah especially in today's society i mean you know We'll see. We'll see how how the economy goes, obviously, with a new president and everything that goes along with that, with the politics of it. But um, it is, you know, we, we tell them, listen, your your taxes are going to go up, you know, a dollar a day. That's what it's going to cost you to have this department or 50 cents a day. Well, these guys, you know, they, they spend more than that on a cup of coffee every day, but they don't. Equate it to a lot of people won't equate it to the safety of their family, you know um, So you're right. The value is huge when I'm at work Wherever I may work and yet now there's a, a competent Capable well-equipped and trained group of people coming to do EMS on my kid or on you know, my family While I'm away and I can't be there to do it. That's priceless so yeah, you have to you have to go to the to the heart just as much as the purse strings to make these things happen. I agree with him, he's, he's spot on, absolutely spot on.
0: Yeah, I think a good example, have you seen the the History Channel documentary Into the Fire that they did? It had like some career people, some paid on call, and well, there yeah. was the one guy, I think it was either volunteer or paid on call, but he was a single driver of an aerial, and they responded to a multiple alarm, you know, apartment fire, and there were people hanging out the window, and you know, this this, baby was thrown from the window and it died and the mother jumped and she died and this this was in the 80s and this guy I think I think it was about 10 12 years ago they did this documentary yeah. and he's still in tears because he had all the equipment but no actual staffing to facilitate the rescue and there were power lines and stuff that stopped him setting up as well
1: yeah million million dollar rigs just don't don't do it it just it takes people everything in our career you know I've seen where you know the firefighting of the future is you know robots and cannons and you know this and that and it's all bullshit because in the end it still takes people to run those things so it's a dirty job we i don't see any way around it i hope there's no way around it in a way because it's the most fulfilling job i think you know other than maybe a military operator maybe a police officer a nurse a doctor but it's the most fulfilling thing you can do in my life i i don't know how I w- ever would have replaced this or or been happy doing something else you know, I think the military would have been my only probably my only other saving grace to be honest
0: yeah well I think what I love about the fire service especially here in the u.s is not only we do we get to do all the fire stuff we get to keep the rescue and extrication and rope rescue which you know like New York they have that on the PD side but then we get to do the the paramedic side and then the diving and you know and it's just we literally jack of all trades, master of none, and I loved that when the tones went off, you never knew what you are going to do. Okay, eighty percent of the time, it's probably going to be bullshit, but the other 20 percent, <laughs> you know, the, it was it was so exciting. And I don't think any other profession, even even you know, special operations, they still know what they're doing. They're still planning for it. We yes. have no idea when those tones go off. Is there a plane in a tree? Is there a kid in a sewer? I mean, this it's you know, it's sad for the people, but we're always excited that we get to be there and try and figure out the conundrum that is that emergency.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's been the, um, you know, I go to work and it's really not work. I go to the firehouse. I really don't go to work. I go to the firehouse because it's not work to me. It's that old saying that you don't work a day in your life if you love what you do. And, uh, to me that that's the firehouse has always been my kind of my respite. It's kind of been my, uh, place that, that I feel the most comfortable, you know, other than my own physical house. And there was times when I was going through bad times in my life, you know, going through a divorce, going through whatever, where my house didn't feel like it's where I wanted to be, but I I'd go to the firehouse and that was what it was all about. And and the, the unknown is the best, man. You don't know what you're going into. You don't know what what's going to happen. Some days you're not turning a wheel very often, not doing much but then there's other parts of the day where you're challenged and, and it makes you so much better if you're willing to accept what you what you've got in front of you but it makes you so much better and, and it just is fulfilling mentally and and physically it really is so i mean for me that there i don't know what's going to replace that when the time comes that I've, i i got to call it quits you know like probably one of my biggest fears is all right how do i survive after retirement because I got, I got 31 years in a career fire department. I can go whenever I want, but I love it so much. And that's just it. You know, three shifts ago, I think it was four shifts ago, whatever it was. I went to a great, you know, guys did a great job on a strip mall fire in a, uh, with a, uh, Asian restaurant, right? Great place. Guys made a great stop last two shifts ago, whatever it was, I was working, we caught a job in, in a very depressed neighborhood in a multifamily dwelling and and there again, you know, it's just, so it challenged me my set of skills that I have to deal with using it on that restaurant fire versus where my mind needs to be in this rougher neighborhood, you know, on this house fire, big differences. So it's that great challenge. It's just, there's nothing like it.
0: Now, well, yeah. one thing that I see is, you know, some of us and I was definitely in this place, my last apartment, You you get fired up, firefighters who adore this profession, but they find themselves in a department that they're not thriving in. They want to train, they want to be that aggressive one. They want to they want to work out every shift, and they're just pushed down and pushed down and pushed down. With you seeing so many departments through on scene training, you know what is what are some of the the mistakes that some departments are making that or create an environment where the firehouse isn't healing, where there isn't that brother and sisterhood that so many of us have enjoyed, at least in part of our career?
1: You know, a lot of it is is there's so many different problems and problem people that cause it. I mean, these problems, it's not just the mayor's an asshole or the town council's not giving us the money. It's not that. And I'm not saying that that's how it is where I work because right now, we're working under great conditions. Like that's a whole nother story, but, um, but I've experienced it in the past. And what I would say is a lot of it, you have people who aren't willing to set their egos aside at the top, who aren't willing to empower their people, um, who aren't taking advice, I think from good people. Uh, you know, the, the Paul Combs puts out so many great, great cartoons and Paul's a dear friend, but, Puts out so many great cartoons that are so spot on about leaders who, you know, it's all about shining my badge. And, you know, that's what it's about. It's not about my people. And we, you know, through all the training that we get and through all the great, great podcasts and stuff we can learn, it's about the men in the mission Uh (laughs) or the women in the mission or whoever. Um, That's who it's about. And I think we lose that when, when we have leaders who don't see it it sucks the life out of fire departments. It really does. You have arrogant company officers who, you know, it's my way or else. We don't live in that world anymore that, that people just accept that and okay, whatever. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And if we're not embracing the, the, the skill sets that people bring to us, um, and we have to give them some rope, let them do their thing and see where it goes. Obviously we have to, It into our our system, but we have to empower people. And I I worked for some really good officers who allowed me to do that as a young guy coming up. Um, And I worked for some people who I didn't like at all, who who held me down. I felt or were condescending or just looked at me with a kind of jaded eye. And I learned I didn't want to be those. So it made me a better officer not to be that guy. But I think that we see in in some of these places they haven't embraced training they haven't embraced what they they have great capabilities but they stay in their little bubble you know well we're not going to go to an fdic or a firehouse or we're not going to go to another state's training facility and learn from these people or now with social media there's so much out there you can learn so much good and bad but uh I think that there, I saw it even in Hamilton where I work is we had a lot of guys that stayed in there. It was their comfort zone. They didn't want to get out of it. Um, and if you brought something new in, Oh, what are you trying to be like those guys? You know, Oh, a Chicago guy taught you that. So you think you're Chicago now? No, it just, it's tested. It's proven it works. So we can't hold our people down. Let them come to you with what they learn. Prove to me why it's good as, you know, as a boss, I tell them, show me why it's going to work for us. Let's try it out. And if it works, Awesome. If it doesn't work, well, we learned something either way and but we empower our people to do these things and make them part of it. You know, it's, it's like, the, um, there's so many good examples of that. I, I read, uh, it's your ship and it's our ship and, and, and what the captain wrote in there about how he empowered his folks to do things. And they went from being the worst ship in the Navy to being one of the highest scored ships there were. So, but I think that's one of our problems in the fire service, we don't have, there There are times and there are places that we don't have officers who are willing to step up, be leaders, are their folks, and when they see something bad, stop it, you know, have the balls to stand up and just say, no, this isn't acceptable, you're not going to behave this way, I, I just talked to a dear friend of mine, who's a training guy, he's tremendous, probably one of the most knowledgeable firemen I've ever met in my life, and a fantastic person. And right now he's ready to retire. Damn, I, I think he is because he's so frustrated with some of the leadership in his fire department. He's like, he says, man, I wish we had chiefs like, you know, the chief I work for is, is an absolute fantastic guy who lets us become who we're supposed to be. And he goes, I wish I had a guy like Rich to work for or, you know, some of these others. And it hurts you to see them, great firemen and and these people being torn down or beaten down by Really shitty leadership in the end you know, somebody's got to step up somebody's got to be the adult in the room
0: yeah well you mentioned about fragile egos and letting people do their job uh, that's something that I've kind of witnessed from a couple of angles with the same same topic same question is uh, you know firstly the hiring standards making sure that you have the right people in the department in the first place because I've witnessed the department that had no hiring standards those trouble people now get bugles and they still don't <laughs> yeah. know what they're doing.
1: Yeah, they promote the problem sometimes.
0: Exactly. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is, which I want to get to next, is that realism of training, that frequency of training, that that group workouts that foster that that camaraderie, that brother and sisterhood, and therefore, you know, kind of eliminates that micromanagement and creates that that um, positive mindset in the department. So. Again, with, with you being in the training realm, what's your opinion, especially if a lot of us now don't get as many fires as 2021s, a lot of new construction, a lot of very safe buildings. What's the importance of, of regular, realistic training, not only for our skills, but also for fostering camaraderie?
1: It's irreplaceable. It's, it's the key component, I believe, of any fire department. It's, it's got to be the foundation. Obviously, you've got to have good people and you have to have visionaries. Um, and again, I'm, I'm really blessed. I work in a place with a lot of that. We have our problems, but we have some real visionaries and some real forward thinking people. And I've seen that in lots of other fire departments, and e- including volunteer fire departments. Um, but yeah, fostering the family, fostering the company level. If we can't do it, if the department's all screwed up and we can't get it totally where we want it departmentally, then we can do it company level. Hopefully. Um, and the, the realism in training—it's hard at times because, again, we, we hear the same stuff. We I can listen to any podcast and hear training guys say, "Well, we got to train in in real buildings. We can't train in you know concrete and steel burn buildings, burn hay in pallets. It's not real. It's you know." And I get all that. It's true. It's, it it makes the task more difficult. But if you if you're if you've got some vision and you've got a little bit of adaptability. You can make those things more realistic and you can throw realistic scenarios at people and you can make those pushes, so to speak, to get to better places. Years ago, and this is years and years ago, Mike Champo was teaching a class with us and, and one of them we were going to do was VES. And this is probably literally 15, 18 years ago before Champ was a big name and you know, and, and training was what it is today all over the internet. And he was the first guy I ever saw build a set of bunk beds in a in a burn room because we're going to do training and he says how many kids rooms have bunk beds and are we teaching guys to reach high no we weren't teaching that we were teaching them to feel along the wall we were you know it was like a choo 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 train search with you know you hold on to my boot i'll hold on to the wall and we we wouldn't find a goddamn soul if that's how we did it but that's how we taught it in firefighter one and V school and all this and champ we just made it out of pallets and the next thing he did was he made a bassinet, so you know. And I thought, my God, how smart of him! How many times would you just not realize that was something there? So we, he added realism to our trainings. Again, this is almost 20 years ago. Now it's commonplace. It's funny because I see instructors going, "Look what I created! I, I came up with this bunk bed setup or this bassinet setup." I'm like, "Yeah, Champ taught me that 20 years ago, but uh, uh, but take credit for it. Go ahead, dude. Um, <laughs> but because there's plenty of that going on." But um, but you can. You can do that. And the more you push uh, the realism of it, the better you're going to be. You're going to be a better company. You're going to be more confident in your skills. As a captain, when I was a riding captain, I was way more confident in my guys after I trained with them for a lot of times. I, I could feel what they were going to do, so to speak. And, and they knew what I expected. Uh, and that got really good. So there, there was that. Um, but I, I, I just think that The more you do together and you're always going to have some guy on your crew who maybe not he's not quite as motivated as the rest of you. But sometimes that person, when you start including them, they add a lot to it and they get fired up. I worked with a guy um, and and I'll say his name. His name is Dave Wilbur, And Dave just retired a couple of years ago. And a lot of guys were a little intimidated by Dave because he was a big dude. He was gruff at times. He could be kind of grumpy. And, you know, training-wise, he'd be like, ah, I'm not doing that shit, you know. And then we'd start in on a drill. Dave jumped in with both feet. And and I'd look over and I'm thinking, he's teaching this drill. I'm not, you know, because he had so many years of experience. And once he got included in it, he was offering guys tips and knowledge that I wouldn't have thought of, you know, stuff I might not have come up with. So it's that inclusiveness again. And it's working with who you know, getting to know each other, Um my dad's famous line was familiarity breeds contempt as a boss. You know, you can only be so familiar with your fa- with your guys. You, you know, you've got to remind them that you're still a boss in the fire service. I think that's a little different. You know, maybe in industry. It's one thing. But in the fire service, the more you know about them, the more you know about their inner workings, what's going on at home, their kids names. You know, hey, your kids playing soccer today, how they do. It builds that cohesiveness. It really does. And um, I worked with guys like that. I worked for a fire chief for about 18 years like that. And I and I think I learned from him. Um, and we became really pretty tight as a family unit in the firehouse. And when I had troubles in my life, that brought me back to a little bit better place. So, But I guess the next thing, you, you had asked about realism in training. There's too much. This is how we do it. Now do it. We teach it to you. You regurgitate it. We're done.
0: Mm-hmm. Check
1: that the doesn't. Box. Yeah, yeah, and and that just doesn't work. Um, you know, it may get you the the technical ability to force a door, but now that there's fire behind the door, it's in a zero visibility, and and you know the engines behind you yelling, "Come on, open the door! Come on, we got to get in!" You know. Now, can you still do that job the same way you did it in the parking lot on the forcible entry prop? Um, so I think a lot of like what Rick George does down in Florida with his stress inoculation, a lot of obviously what the military has been preaching for years to operators and so forth. We need more of it in the fire service. we got to ramp it up. Um, I grant you in Firefighter One programs, essentials programs, maybe you don't do that right away. But somewhere while they're in the academy, you got to ramp it up because they can't come out. Just thinking, well, I'm just going to force this door and it's easy or, you know, moving this line is going to be no problem because then they're going to force a door, get in, hit a hoarder condition or, you know, have a burned away floor and not know how to act or react. Um, So I do believe that you've got to add a lot more to it. A lot of the noises, a lot of the a lot of the realistic things that are going to happen to us. Um, Guys like like um, uh, Matty Negley. Maddie, you know passed away he was an Orlando guy um, I used to love watching Maddie teach truck at FDIC with Champo and JJ Cassetta and all those guys because Maddie was the guy screaming at the window throwing the baby doll out you know come help me come help me my baby's in here and he would ramp these students up and he was so good at it you know and so every time I do that at a drill somewhere I think alright I'm doing this with like the way Maddie, I would hope the way he would approve of it type thing you know um, some of the RIT training same thing they're teaching guys these maneuvers. They're teaching them the Denver. They're teaching them the Nance. But they're teaching it to them under really bullshit conditions. Whereas, you know, you've got to get them under fire. You've got to get them under duress the because it's it's the most stressful situation probably in some people's lives that they're ever going to face. And yet I've seen academies stamp certificates. and And, and I saw it in our own stuff years ago where we just weren't, we didn't understand that mindset. Now we do. And uh, I know through on-scene, I just had a Zoom meeting with all the on-scene instructors, and we talked about, all right, we're doing it really well. How are we going to do it better? Because we owe it to the students. We've got to be better than we were yesterday. And uh, you can't have guys rest on their laurels, bottom line.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Matt Negley. It's funny. When I went through fire school in 2003, um, we had a we had a smorgasbord of instructors from the ones that now, as an an you know, older firefighter, realised were a lot of in you know, a hot air, and then ones yeah. that walked the walk. And there was this one dude that showed up every so often, big Orlando guy that just had so much passion and would absolutely change it up and add some stress. And ironically, that was Walt Lewis, and I'm actually going to uh, go and assist him at the Orlando Fire Conference this year, which is you awesome. know I mean I mean just as an extra pair of hands. I'm not I'm not sure. a teacher at all, but um, so that I can also do some forcible entry. And I was hoping to do it with Mike. Is he going to be coming? I know he was having some issues going on. I don't know. Actually, I left him a mess, a voicemail yesterday, so I'm waiting to hear back. Okay, because it's different now. Now I'm retired, and again, my transition really came from what we we're talking about, from being such a toxic environment that I realized I was going to make more of a difference outside the fire service where I was. But yeah. um, it's now thinking, I don't, I don't think of us as retired when we transition away from being paid. I think, that, you know, like the Marines, you're always a firefighter. So... Think skills like forceful entry and, you know, extrication. Some of those you could still be a good Samaritan, stumble across something and and use that. So that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, but yeah, but the Orlando Fire Conference getting back to realism. I did the VES training with Eric Wheaton a couple of years ago and it was amazing. Real, real human casualties, you know, and screaming. And, and I think even with, with Waltz one, the command class that they're doing they're going to have a lot of stress on these officers running these scenarios as well. And I think Rick is even coming down and the part of it again this year. That's cool. That's so, cool. so yeah, but I think to, to tie in the fitness side, something that I do see at all these conferences is there are a lot of, you know, deconditioned firefighters and kudos to them. They showed up and working on the skill, but I think a conversation I don't hear very often is, you could be so much better if you were actually in shape as well. And I think that the the lack of fitness is detrimental. Yes, you can force a door, but can you force a door on a 20th floor after you climbed all those stairs? So what is your perspective of the, you know, the, the strength and conditioning side in application to the training? So yes, you're the, the portly firefighter, you can get the job done, but understanding, yeah, but you'd be so much better if you were actually in shape as well.
1: Yeah, and it's it's weird because I, when I've been around the around the country and around and really around the world, I, I've spent some time in, in Asia teaching. I spent time in the South Pacific, um, and what what you see for the most part everywhere but the the states is very well fit firemen. You really do. Um, there, they, it's it's just a different mindset for some reason that we got here. Um, I think that some of it played back to the volunteers where we'll take whoever because we're desperate for people. Um, not that we don't all have a place because listen, I've seen volunteers join volunteer fire companies and and you looked at them and you went, Oh Jesus, what, what could this guy do? But he turned out he was a great member to take care of the building or he was a great member to, to wash the rigs and you needed somebody like that. But when it comes to getting dirty and stretching line and throwing ladders and doing our job, It is a problem. It's it's a serious problem. One thing has to be. We we have to. Be tougher on what we. What we require. And and that's bottom line. When I went through firefighter one program in the 80s. There was no physical fitness requirement. We didn't work out at all. It didn't bother me. I was a high school athlete. You know I was I was shredded and. And nowhere near. Being the 50 some year old out of shape guy that I became at one point. Um, But. The bottom line is you are a tactical athlete. If you're if you're the heavy guy, there's going to be times where you're not going to be able to do what the what the athlete can do. You may be able to control your breathing better because you're experienced, you know, versus the 22 year old fresh out who's sucking down the bottle because it's their first or second fire and they're they're shitting bricks. And, you know, you look at him and the old salt would, you know, without his mask on yet when we're on the second floor and it's filling up. Relax, kid, we got this but down the road that's going to catch you and that kid's going to get experience and he's going to stay in good shape and he's going to be able to kick ass. And at some point you're not anymore. And I think that's, that's something you got to understand. And from my aspect of it, I, I so, you know, when we were talking before, I've been a yo-yo with my weight, um, and my fitness and my conditioning throughout my career. And it's, it's not something to be proud of, but it's just something I've, I've battled for years. I'm back on the downward slide again. Finally, I I woke up one day and said, yeah, the uniform doesn't fit the way it should. I don't like what I see in the mirror. And I'm tired climbing those steps, bottom line. And I shouldn't be tired climbing those steps. And you've got to look in the mirror and say, can I do my job right? And can those guys rely on me or am I going to become the weakest link? And I don't want to be the weakest link. And even as a chief now where I'm not inside nearly like I want to be, I'm, you know, I'm out in front in the buggy or on the front lawn or or stand on a sidewalk making decisions. If I portray that, yeah, it's okay to be the fat guy. It's okay to have your belly hanging over your belt. You know, what happens if I have a cardiac arrest or something like that in the middle of this job? I let everybody down, my family especially, but I let everybody on the fire ground down. And now I became the problem. So there's got to be some personal buy-in. You've got to at some point say – Dude, this ain't working, you know, and go from there. Um, I'm a fan of working out on duty to some degree, especially as a crew. I think that it builds crew integrity. Again, it's another thing. You don't have to kill yourselves. I I watched some firehouse gyms and, you know, it's it's a scene out of Muscle Beach or some shit. And that's not smart either because on a 24, if you're going through these killer blowout workouts and you got nothing left in the tank when I need you to, you know, hook. Five rooms of ceilings, at a job, we're gonna have a problem. Um, but there's got to be a happy medium there too. And um, I now, for me, now that I'm really back into working out and pushing myself hard, the day I'm in the firehouse is is my rest day. So I've got plenty of other work I got to deal with, and that I'm taking it as my rest day. And but every day that I'm off, I'm I'm doing something. And and I think the other thing is for the older guys you know, again, we say about tactical athletes, you've got to pace yourself. Don't try to keep up with the young kid in the gym. If he's pushing 250 on a bench and you're only comfortable doing 135, do 135, but do it, you know, and and then maybe you max out your reps higher or whatever, but you got to do something because this is such an unforgiving job and who wants to be the next statistic, you know, And, and it's, it's been proven. I mean, there's enough studies and We know what it takes. It's just a matter of doing it. But the other, I know I'm rambling here, but the other thing that goes with it, and where where I work in the Northeast, we're a very, very union strong area, very strong. You get a guy who is really unfit for duty. How do you wash him out of the job under some of these labor agreements and some of the things that happen? That's a problem. I, I tell you we created a new fire department January 1st of this year and I'm a deputy chief in the brand new fire department and we are seeing fit for duty issues and I'm not sure how we're going to address them from a legal standpoint so it's it's a big problem in the American fire service it really is
0: yeah well I try and be very fair and paint the picture the way it should be painted so you have, and I'm, I'm just pulling numbers out my rear end, but you have the top 10% that come hell or high water, they're going to be the fit, fit, fit men and women. You know, they're the ones that no matter what happens, they still work out. They understand their recovery. They understand their sleep. Then you get the bottom 10% or, you know, more depending on the department that probably should never have even walked through the door in the first place. And then you get the middle, you know, that starts off super fit. And I talk about this on the grinder on day one of an academy where that middle group, they're in pretty good shape and they, they have a desire to do the job. But then as time goes on, whether it's police, whether it's fire, you see 10, 15 years, they're not the same anymore. They're out of shape. They're heavier. They're, you know, hypertensive and diabetes and all these things. And so I think what is important for people to understand is that there's the ownership side, but there's also the environment and certainly down here in Florida and then when I worked in California we were on 56 work weeks no Kelly and that destroys the human body hormonally sex hormones I mean everything you know your your blood sugar testosterone levels everything so understanding that as well that we as a profession and you mentioned union rather than fighting over a one dollar pay raise maybe we need to look at the work week and ask why a bank teller taps out at 40 and someone that has to climb a 20-story high-rise and rescue a baby, and then do a you know a c or a a ped's you know code on that kid after is working 56 hours a week. So that's the other thing that I see in corrections and you know all these these areas. Is that right now we're setting our men and women up for failure, and the the most motivated will stay in shape despite the way we work, but a lot of you know, the people that are in the middle start to succumb and it becomes normal that the 38 year old firefighter already has a bag full of meds, which is so not normal. It's, it's, I I can tell you, I see it.
1: I see it right. Prime example in my own fire department, we were getting ready for the, the, the chief, uh, one of the, he was doing some admin work, getting us lined up for our COVID vaccines. All right. A lot of guys were kind of touchy on it. Um, I took mine, but so we, we, uh, where he's formulating the list, and he says to a guy in a firehouse who is, I would say mid to late thirties, I would say morbidly obese, um, "Hey, dude, you want the you want on the list? I'm I'm formulating the list. Do you want on?" And I shit you not, this guy is holding a monster in each hand, literally energy drink in each hand, and probably drinks say six to eight of these a day. All right. And says to him, no way, chief. I don't know what's in that. I ain't putting that shit in my body. <laughs> and, and I swear to God, the chief looked at him and he goes, you did not just say that to me. <laughs> but, but this is that mentality that we got to break, you know, and uh, and he's a great guy, but he's he's not thinking anything about anything else. And it's, it's just craziness. And you're right. It's that they do. They come out of the academy in you know, rock star shape for the most part. And then at some point, you know, we got to get back to better nutrition in the firehouse. You know, we sit around a lot. It's a sedentary job when we're not running our asses off. And there is some TV time or study time where you're sitting at your computer or you're reading a book or whatever. And there's got to there's gotta be a way to manage that better. And, and the other thing is departments have to invest in their people's health by not just saying, okay, here's a gym in the, in the firehouse. You know what? Here's a trainer who's going to come help you. IAFF's got a great pure fitness program. Um, We're not IAFF where I work. Um, New Jersey has two big unions, and that's not ours. But uh, I have friends that are are pure fitness trainers for them. Um, Sue Shepard from Indianapolis Fire Department. Fantastic. A, a, A small build woman who can knock the shit out of it compared to a lot of the big boys that I work with. But brings that to their guys and to their girls and their academy and shows them how to do it. Um, the other thing is just annual physicals. How many fire departments are even doing even an NFPA physical anymore and really making sure that the, the firefighters follow through with it? Um, I was blessed. The place I worked prior to the new department forming, they were very strong on that. We, we went to OCH Health. We got everything done. All our, our blood work, our EKGs, the stress test, you know, chest x-ray, and we caught problems. Um, in New Jersey, for instance, there's this amazing program called A Gift from Captain Bushio. And Captain Bushio was a North Jersey fireman who uh, died on a family ski trip, if I'm not mistaken, cardiac arrest at a very young age. And his wife led the charge on firefighter fitness and said, you know, cardiac kills firemen so easily. It's so, uh, it's so common. Why aren't we doing something? And they created a fund. And uh, any firefighter in the state of New Jersey, whether you're a career or volunteer, old guy, young guy, doesn't matter, um, you can sign up for this. If they don't take your, insu- if, if your insurance doesn't cover it, it's free. They charge your insurance, but no co-pays, nothing, no extra back bills. Um, I am scheduled to take mine next Tuesday. Again, it'll be my third year doing it. And it's fantastic. We caught a guy at my work, uh, one of our captains, in his early 50s. And he had the Widowmaker and he was going to die any minute he was going to die. And they caught it and he went in. He ended up having, I think, triple or quadruple bypass. He's back on the job. He looks fantastic. He's in better shape than most of us. And it was a plumbing issue, so to speak. And once they fixed it, he, you know, he took a long recovery, but he's released a full duty and he's going to go be able to, you know, dance with his daughter at her wedding and see his son play high school football and, and, you know, thank God. So it's about, it's about us. And it's about those we serve in the same vein because, you know, I'm all about, they're number one to me. They are number one. They didn't take the oath. I took the oath. They don't have thousands of hours of training, thousands of dollars worth of gear and SCBA and, and everything that I have. So if they're relying on me and I'm this slug who's out of shape who can't get it done, I've completely failed. Completely failed. So even as a chief who's no longer doing, I'm not stretching, I'm not doing what I was doing, kind of sucks. The best view I ever had was out of this piece of the windshield, not that piece of the windshield. You know, The, the, small, the small right-hand side of the windshield was my favorite in my life. And when the day I became a chief and I'm riding in a buggy and I'm looking out the whole thing, big changes, <laughs> big changes. But we owe it. We owe it to them and we owe it to our family. So as fire department leaders, we owe it to our people to put these things in place. And it's not we're trying to wash you out of the job if you're you know, way out of shape and you can't perform your duties. It's we want you to get healthier to either stay on the job or to stay healthy enough that you're going to take care of your family down the road and you're not going to be a statistic and your kids aren't going to grow up without a mom or dad. And that's, that's how I look at fitness in the fire service. And like I said, I, I I started, I recommitted about a month ago to myself and I'm, I'm dropping weight and I feel better and I'm eating better again. And you know, when you're on the road and you're doing all these other things, it's so easy to get in shitty habits, bad diet, fast food, you know, not working out, nearly like you should and i fall i've fallen into that trap more than once in my life and you got to have a wake up call at some point yeah so.
0: no i i agree completely it's funny cuz we actually pushed this interview back an hour um, so we could both work out so there we go walk yeah. in the walk <laughs> mm-hmm. but um but no but i think that's just it that it, there is no downside to this and that's why when i have special operations men and women on here they are blown away that we don't have an annual fitness requirement like tests that we're held to because the seals the pjs the rangers they all are and they hold us to you know we're responsible for taking care of their families while they're deployed so you know so there's that then there's the operational side but then like you said if you're going to give 20, 25, 30 years of your life away from your family every third day. I worked out, only woke up next to my wife one out of three days. Only kissed my son in the morning one out of three days of my career. Then you want to enjoy your retirement too. So there is no downside. So that's why it kills me when in uh, you know, administrations oppose that and also unions like we pay unions to keep us healthy and if you're opposing annual fitness standards and and um, as you said annual physicals and shame on you it's time to, to to you know control or delete and get some new people in there because if they're self-serving because they're scared of their own health that's not the person you need in charge of your wellness
1: yeah totally agree and and some of the like i said some of the unions are really being proactive and i'll say here in new jersey we have the New Jersey State FMBA, uh, which is I've been a member of that since I was a 20-year-old kid. They have done tremendous things for mental health and for physical health. They are pushing it. Um, they will protect their, their members to the hilt if it comes to a guy losing his job. And, I, and, I, and that, again, that's what a union does. But they have done really, really taken big steps that we didn't have 15, 20 years ago. We were not taking those steps, mental health or physical um you know there and there's so many good sites out there like i know now with our fmba um pip i don't know if you you know uh yeah he's been on here yeah so pip is just this awesome dude who's in our fmba state fmba and now they're pumping his stuff out you know on on social media and in our monthly um magazine that comes out so they're taking that proactive approach and there's a guy with the most energy i've ever met in you know towards physical fitness So I think we're starting to buck the trend. Uh, Like I said, and with the IAFF peer fitness programs. I know they've been around doing it and and trying to get it out there. But we just have to remember, yeah, we want to protect our members' livelihoods. But if they're not physically up to the standards, I don't want you protecting that guy's livelihood more than you're protecting my crew's life. So let's find the happy medium there. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's just it. It's not headhunting someone immediately that they're – Deconditioned, it's given them all the tools to get back to where they used to be. But if there's no desire to do that, that's that. Those are the people that you have to cut loose.
1: Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Let's 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 remediate the issue if we can. If it's not something that can be repaired and that they're not willing to take those steps, you know what? McDonald's is hiring, and sometimes they pay more than the fire department. Yeah,
0: they do. That's they do, they do down got, here. <laughs> that's
1: how we got to look at it. Unfortunately, yeah. All right. Well, I want
0: to hit on one more area and then go to, um, to, to the mental health stuff that you touched on. But just very quickly, one thing that I've seen in the, the fitness world, strength and conditioning, when it comes to our people, is there's undoubtedly the fear of looking stupid. And so what I've found is very effective is I use a lot of strongman. Tools. So sleds—you just push, pull. You can tell. Look, when you push a sled, it's like advancing a hose line. When you pull a sled, it's like dragging someone out. When you carry sandbags, it's like you know, again, some sort of body recovery or removal. Um, you know, so there's a lot of a lot of uh, imagery, and it's what the human body is designed to do. Versus, you know, okay, we're going to do snatches, we're going to do Turkish get-ups and things. So when that fear was removed, I found that I had a huge amount of buy-in when I would teach. You mentioned about the naysayers in training and that's, you know, you talk about wanting to choke people, the dude in the lazy boy rolling his eyes because we're going to go train in the heat. Um, you know, that's that's the person that I want to strangle. So what do you see as far as uh, fear in the training realm with, with all the training that you've done um, and that really being the underlying psychology to the resistance of training from some groups or, or people? Yeah.
1: Um. So the fear aspect of it is 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 pretty interesting. I think that there are, I guess I'll start in the leadership end of it, at, at the higher echelons of the fire department. A lot of I've seen officers and and chiefs, especially, who don't want their people to know more than they do, and because then they feel like they're not in control. Uh, my dad warned me about that when I was a kid, making the push in the fire department. He said, you know, you're very aggressive. You're you're dumb at times, but you're really smart Um, and people are going to see that and They're they're going to resist you and they're going to push back against you because they fear that you're going to get ahead of them Intellectually or physically doing things Um, And he was right. I did see where there was times where that happened and I think that that's a problem that I've seen where you'll have high echelon officers who are pushing back against it for simple fear of shit, this guy may unseat me or this guy is going to try and take the credit when I get the credit, you know? So it's, again, it goes back to that ego when it comes to guys who are just, who are firefighters, chauffeurs, you know, whatever. Um, I think it's just the natural fear of, I don't know how to do this. I don't want to look like a fool. Kind of like you said. Um, and that, that'll make them step back a few steps. The other thing I think is, the way in which an instructor approaches them. If they've had condescending instructors, and I don't know who termed this thing or if it's my term or not, but you ever have an instructor who big leagues you? Who, who I'm, I'm that instructor, man, I've done it, I've stretched on 150,000 fires, and I've done this, and I've done that, and, and you are this guy, and this is how it's gonna be, and this is why it's gonna be, and you know, I've had those instructors. And I immediately was like, kiss my ass, I'm out, right? Not that that guy probably didn't know his stuff, because some of them really do. Some of them are just doing that because they don't know shit, and they're trying to impress upon you. They do. But I, I found that a more humble approach, a more, a more down-to-earth approach, a more, I'm not here to teach you. I'm here to share with you, and I'm here to learn from you. And and we're going to develop this, you know, granted, there's some things when you get to proby school or something. Hey, this is how it's going to be. And this is how, why it's going to be this way. And don't question me. <laughs> but as we develop into it as instructors, you got to read your read your audience. And I think that a lot of guys have gotten really bad instruction that way. And that makes them fear it because they don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to be embarrassed. You know, hey, you you couldn't force that door in in thirty seconds. You suck. Get out of the way and let me show you. And I've seen those instructors. I've worked with some of those over the years. They don't work for on scene. I can tell you, but it's it's that approach has has beaten down people, um, and and I think that's probably a lot to do with it. You know, it, it uh, it's all about how the training is approached. I'm not saying kid gloves and kiss their ass every five minutes either, because we are a paramilitary organization. And this is how it's got to be. There are times where this isn't up for debate but there has to be that have some respect show respect to the student to the to the firefighter Um, especially I found it in the volunteer world where they'll just shut you down and be like screw you I'm not even getting paid to take this abuse you know so you do have to know your audience a little bit as well and I think that you can alleviate a lot of people's fear just by talking to them like a human being and being you know I hear a lot of FDNY guys, and I picked it up when I was young, say, you know, we're going to force that door like a gentleman. We're going to go through that window like a gentleman. You know, we're not we're not assholes. We're not going to go bashing and smashing if we don't need to. You know, we're going to be respectful, so to speak. We're going to do it the right way. And I think that's how I've been very blessed to be around guys who had that attitude, who impressed it upon me. And and I hope I I get the chance that I'm impressing upon others
0: yeah no that's a a really valuable perspective something that i've seen from um you know some of the trainings i've done are the good ones are when you do it twice at least and the the whole philosophy is look first time you're just trying it expect to fail expect to make mistakes expect to screw it up we want you to do that because now you are kind of you know you're you're pushing the boundaries a little bit then we're going to reset we'll actually talk about some stuff and then we'll do it again and now you have a learning process but what i found in some of the, the 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 Bad ones is you get a guy or a woman who memorizes a chapter, immediately teaches it, patronizes yeah. everyone because they don't know, you know, verbatim what they just memorized 20 minutes before, and then like you said, check the box, you know, whether it's gone badly or not, you know, and that's that's the worst thing I think. Is to me, I make a lot of mistakes. I'm a freaking idiot on the fireground sometimes, but I want repetition. I want to do it until I that particular skill I at least have mastered the wrong word, but at least I've got it down. You know, yeah. but like you said, if you're not creating a training environment where mistakes are encouraged, then, you know, then you're going to create this fear. But if everyone's relaxed, like, look, we're all going to trip over stuff. We might struggle with the door. We might search the wrong room by mistake, but then we're going to regroup and then find out what we did wrong. And then we're going to redo it again. Again, not scripted, like you said, but try and improve on the last time. And then that builds confidence with baby steps rather than, as you said, Following a script, which I've seen, which is the worst type of training. I got, I got reprimanded for saving people, but I didn't do it the right way in my last yeah. department. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, then, then that creates, as you said, a fear of, of looking stupid, and no one wants to look stupid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. I, I tell you, I've got a 21 year old son, moved to South Carolina a month and a half ago. Um, he got hired. We moved him down there, and he's in, he's in recruit school. And I know there's days he's struggling. There is no doubt in my mind the boy is struggling because he's a big kid and they are working them hard. And I said, I I talked to him on a daily basis and I explained to him, listen, they're going to make you, number one, a better fireman. You know, you're going to be a good fireman when you come out of there because you're being taught by really high quality people. Number two, they're going to make you a better man, better person. You know, um, you're going to understand how to interact with people better but they're respectful in the way in which it's being done. They're stern, very stern. Um, and he's felt the wrath of sternness, I think, in the last week or so. But, but this is how it works, you know? And they're, they're professionals who've been there and done it. And I have nothing against a young firefighter being an instructor, because I did it. I made lots of mistakes, still make lots of mistakes. I've never been to a fire, I've never been to a drill, I've never been on a run that I couldn't have done it better. Ever. I've had that attitude as a, when I was a baseball player. You know, I'd go three for four and, and strike out one at bat and be angry as hell for an hour or two that, why didn't I go four for four? And i carry that into my firefighting career as well, that I could be better. The day I, don't, I think I nailed it all is, is really definitely time to walk away because then you're not going to stay sharp at all. Um, so it's not about the years doing it. It's about the quality doing it. We're seeing in the training world a lot of people pop up all of a sudden because of social media, because of Internet Famous and whatever else, who are offering training. More than likely, a lot of these folks have never done what they're saying they should, you should do. They've never been in that hallway making those decisions when things were really going down wrong. They've never been on a roof making that vent hole. When you talk to them and, you know, oh, this is how we cut our vent holes and this is how we're going to do it. How many have you really done under fire conditions when when the engine was screaming, hey, open this thing up, we're getting our asses handed to us? We're seeing more and more of this. And that's a real problem. That is the the negative to social media in the fire service, whereas there's so many good positives to it. You look at me. I can be an instructor. I'm going to stand on the pedestal and teach you things. If you've been there, you've done it. And you're and you're humble and you're, you know offering it in the right manner home run, man. I'll, I'll listen to you all day long. If, if even if you've got three years on the job, but you went to a lot more work, you've got it figured out. Great. I can learn from you. But these pop-ups who are taking a class at Orlando fire conference or something on scene training does or FDIC. And, you know, six months later, they now have, you know, Joe Schmo training LLC and they're all over the internet They're they're all over Instagram and they're bad asses. And, and you know, they're, in their chest and and this is how we are we're the aggressive we're the ones who do it this way and that way unfortunately there's there's guys buying that shit up right now and they're getting trained wrong and they're going to get somebody hurt or killed and there's no way to vet that you know it, it it takes strong vetting to get through that bullshit so we have to we have to find that happy medium there too you know i i see it with some of these great training companies and uh I wouldn't say they're my competition or they but I, I, I talked to Mark Gregory from PL Vulcan a lot. You know, they do it with class. They're gentlemen. They've been there. They've done that. When they present something to me, I know that that is tried and true. And that's really important. And I think even in a probie school, if I'm going to have somebody teach something, I want the guy who's doing it or the girl who's teaching it to be vetted and show that it's, it's tried and true. Um, you know, it's, it's, we have Jenny Grima teaching with us. Jenny's on the job in Saint Lucie. Um, she doesn't have a lot of years on the job. I don't know, five, six years on the job. She's an absolute stunning athlete, a badass who absolutely trains harder than everybody because of her size or weight and what she needs to do. And when the guys from On Scene came to me and said, "You know, we need to mix it up. What do you think?" And, you know, what do you think about bringing Jenny in? We have a lot of Girls, younger girls in the fire service, who might not relate to a 50-year-old gray-haired dude like me, and maybe this is a good idea. And, and the more I thought about us, you know, if I was going to pick somebody, in a home, in a heartbeat, what a great role model, and has the ability to show what she does on a daily basis to our students. Um, and I had mentioned earlier in this Sue Sue uh, uh, Shepherd from Indianapolis, same kind of person, like brings that credibility brings the real deal i've done it i'm not cocky about it i want you to get better um and there's no level of arrogance there's confidence but no arrogance and to me that's what our instructors throughout the nation need to be they yeah. really do
0: yeah see and i look at people like eric wheaton that we have here like walt lewis you know i mean they they just have that different thing and i i told you i i love the fire service but because we're Jack of all trades, master of none, because I was a medic as well as a firefighter. Me personally, at 14 years, I was still hungry for, you know, people to teach me. I was a student and never, ever felt in a position to even like beat my chest and say, oh, let me show you how how we do it. You know, Um, so I think that's it is understanding, like you said, finding those people first and then and then you know have they walked the walk? because a lot of us it's it's a fallacy that we all see a lot of fire these days most right. of us don't i've watched it over 14 years diminish i was a black cloud in anaheim and we burnt like crazy <laughs> and then you know it was it was depressing after that because it kind of dwindled the rest yeah. of my career but but yeah even though i've got to see a lot of fire it was always different i was on a truck company in california i was in an engine company in, in orange county i rode rescue i was a medic so for me 14 years wasn't enough time for me to to be, you know, teaching anyone anything other than hopefully trying to learn the role of of a kind of pseudo senior man one day. But but yeah, I mean, to 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 say that you are an expert, as you said, you have to walk the walk. You have to show that you have the pedigree to not only teach, but as you said, you know, what are you bringing that's new to the table? Or are you just rehashing the same thing, trying to make money from it?
1: There's a lot of that, and there is. It's it, if you're. A, I have found that the guys who are in the training business that are you know getting rich trying to put their kids through college whatever the case may be in the end you're going to fail you're going to be a, you're going to be a, that shooting star you're going to hit meteoric fame and you're going to crash and burn and we've seen it uh, on scene training's been around since officially on paper I think 05 I've seen dozens and dozens of those people do that and they were badass and they were going to take over the industry and put fire engineering out of business and FDIC is going to be nothing because they're a bunch of, you know, this and that. And you know what? In the end, it's all about quality and it's all about humility and it's all about doing it right. And they don't last. And then they, you know, here's, here's a good example. And I, I explained this one time in a class I was in. A guy says to me, he goes, well, I learned this from this dude. And they go to so many fires. And it was a northeast fireman, a similar area from where I work. And my point, I said to him, I said, How many jobs do you think he goes to in a year? Oh, their fire department sees hundreds and hundreds of fires. So okay. Say their fire department sees 200 working jobs a year, right? We work at 2472, right? I'm only on for a quarter of those fires. Oh, and now I just took a bunch of vacation because I'm a senior guy. I got 300 hours vacation. Now how many days did I actually go to work? I didn't catch 200 jobs. Maybe I caught 30 jobs. So the guy who told you he caught all this work, it's all bullshit and fluff.
0: And what is a job? Like, you know, I used to think right. a mattress fire was was uh, you right. know a barn burner when I was a probing. Right, <laughs> right,
1: exactly. So so don't get blown away by the hype on social media, oh, we got all these jobs, because there's very few of us. I mean, here in New Jersey, you know, Jersey City, Newark, they're still catching solid work. You know, Patterson, Elizabeth, they, the North Jersey departments that still see work, Camden. Still sees work, but not nearly what they saw ten years ago, twenty years ago. You know, even us, Trenton. Lately, Trenton's been burning like crazy, uh, but it comes in spurts. None of us are seeing what what was once there. So vet it out. Don't fall for the bullshit persona. You know, the tough guy act, and uh, and and you'll you'll probably be less disappointed in the end.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like you said, I mean the the word that resonates over and over again, whether it's leadership, whether it's your own personal skills, fitness, wellness, you know, whatever, is humility. And like you know, as people say, they they give lip service to the phrase, oh, you know, if you think you know it all then it's time to retire. But no, we actually have to step back and think about that. Like if we you know, the guys that roll their eyes when the tones go off, how the hell do you know what we're gonna go to? You know, I've seen many times people get caught with their trousers down because they've assumed it was bullshit, you know. They didn't bring yeah. the right tools or, you know, whatever it was. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, the moment in this job, the moment you're complacent, it is time to just take off the badge and walk out the door.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the restaurant we had, uh, restaurant fire we had a couple weeks ago, it came in as smoke from the roof at like 7.15 in the morning. Normally a call like that in our area with the weather we've been having is probably melting snow or steam. really. And in my mind, when it went off and I looked at the address, I went, eh, probably not much, probably melting snow or steam, whatever. And, you know, I hit it up in my CAD because we don't have drivers. So I've got it. I'm running my sirens, my radio and my CAD. It's and all at once. And I'm, I'm looking at it and I thought, OK, I better look up this building just in case, you know, bring it up, bring the floor floor of the building up. And sure enough, the battalion arrives and he's got smoke coming from the roof and, you know, then the truck company comes in and says, yeah, we got we got a good fire in here. So that complacency, even that I was thinking when the tones did drop, probably nothing, but I better be a little heads up. And then as soon as I heard his report and I was about three minutes behind him. Now it's game time. So better adjust quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. The minute you let your guard down, this job will bite your ass.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the other thing that will bite your ass that we kind of touched on before we start recording is obviously the, the mental health side. And I think that's another area that we as a profession need to find humility and realize that we're not superheroes, that we're just men and women that happen to put on a certain uniform and, you know, do a job that we love that's, you know, dangerous, but that we are ultimately people. So you touched on divorce, um, you know, before we started talking, you said in in a one year period, you lost two very good friends. So tell me about your kind of mental health journey in the fire service, the the highs and the lows.
1: Sure. So, again, you know, I came in in the early 80s and and mid 80s, and it was a tough guy attitude. There was no mental health. You didn't. If you had a problem, you suck it up, buttercup, you know, or you go in the back with the boys and drink some beers and, and it goes away and that's that's what we were taught um and over the years that was the mentality i had i didn't understand mental health at all until i started getting a good bit older um and you just suppress things you push it back you push it under uh when i was 18 one of my first real uh i guess things that would affect your psyche so to speak was with the volunteer fire company a motor vehicle accident car fire and it was out in the country and you think nothing of it, you know? So as it turned out, a guy hit a tree, uh, found the biggest tree on the road and committed suicide and a brand new Mustang GT convertible. That was the hot shit car in the eighties. And, um, he was in the street on fire and the car was fully involved and this huge oak tree is fully involved and literally parts of the car are out in the field. And the chief's orders. We used to ride the tailboard back then, so I am definitely dating myself. <laughs> but uh, the chief's orders were stretch an inch and a half line and, and extinguish the body, then the car is what he said. I was like, oh shit, you know. And, and back then, air packs were kind of optional. So you know, you masked up if you thought it was you were going to get in the smoke. That was all. And uh, literally, we we got into the air pack on the wall of the firehouse. So there were two packs hanging on the wall right where you came through the first door. You throw your gear on, back up to the pack, throw it on, then hop the tailboard of a mini pumper. And that was our first piece out. And uh, the, the old timer who was in the jump seat next to me said, you got the knob, kid. Okay. And I opened up, and here's the body burning in the street. And you get a good whiff of that burning body, you know. And there's nothing like that smell, and you will never forget that smell the rest of your life. I... Today I can close my eyes and I can see him and I can taste it and smell it and the whole night, every, every moment of that call. And when we were overhauling the car that we popped the trunk and there was golf clubs in the back and stuff. And I remember putting it out and then the state trooper walked up and was talking to the chief and the chief came over to me and he goes, Hey, I need to talk to you for a minute. I'm like, Jesus, what'd I do wrong? Could this possibly be this person? would you and he gave me a name of a kid I grew up with played ball with graduated high school with two days prior right oh, knew his whole fam- knew his whole family and it still kind of gives me chills even talking about it still and i looked down and i went shit yep that's him the golf clubs this kid was a scholarship golf uh, golfer he was going away somewhere down south on a full ride to play golf i looked over and I said, that's, yeah, that, that, that's who it is. And his father came out and I deed him by his shoes and I knew his father. And, um, so you want to talk mental health at 18? Yeah. You know, and here I am in my fifties and I can still smell it, see it, taste it. And it, it doesn't freak me out now, but it certainly did back then. But I didn't even know, I didn't talk about it. Never said a word to anybody it bugged me and the next couple car accidents and fires I went on, I was like, Oh God, I hope it's not this again. Um, but had no way to process that fast forward all these years. Um, I was married. I was married young. I have two kids. My son's 20. He'll be 22. A couple months. My daughter's 18. Um, super successful kids in my eyes. Um, you know, they, they've stayed out of trouble. They've, got focus he's in a career I hope he stays with and my daughter wants to go to law school and she's been saying it since she was 10 and she's taken all the right steps I was married 22 years um, things went to hell things went to hell most likely because of a lot of my issues and that I never addressed or thought about um, and not not you know every divorce has three sides his hers and the truth uh, so we got that but when I look back on it, um, I wish I had seeked mental health care earlier in my career just to keep me more in line, I think. Just to keep me from having a hero complex, from needing the spotlight, being that, well, he's the fireman. He can do it all, he can handle it all, you know? And I should have been talking to somebody about the feelings, the emotions, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I wasn't. And by the time my ex and I saw a therapist about our marriage, it was too late. It was just, it was over. Um, We thought we could fix it. We didn't fix it. And here we are. So um, that was my first true inkling that I needed therapy. I went. Uh, REAP offered therapy. They were fantastic, I think. Um, Since then, I've seen the therapist on several occasions when when I just didn't feel great about things. And it helped me a lot. Um, You know, going through the divorce, I could have been a statistic. I really could have. Um, I had an idea of how to kill myself and what it would take and how much money the kids would each get. And, you know, all my problems would have gone away. And, and, and in my myopic view of it, well, if I'm gone, there won't be the embarrassment of a divorce for my kids. There won't be, It'll just be, oh, maybe the kids will be felt sorry for him. People will be nice to them And all that kind of stuff went through my head. And luckily, I guess I was a, a you call me a pussy or whatever. I didn't have the balls to do it. Thank God. And um, I'm I'm Jewish, right? Grew up in a town where I was the only Jew. Just my family. That was it. And in the fire service, there ain't a hell of a lot of us, you know. Um, it was kind of cool to have the Hebrew hammer with Mark. And Mark Weiss from Florida, you know, because yeah. because that brought a little bit of us to the forefront, which uh, in a bad way, in a good way. But um, bottom line was, I had I, I had faith, but I didn't have I didn't I still don't have tight feelings about organized religion. Um, but you know what I did? I saw a therapist, and I literally didn't know who else to reach out to. And I went and saw the priest who married us, and I I sat in the rectory with him and. We prayed and we talked, and I said, "Do you think she'll ever take me back?" And he looked at me. And he goes, "No, she's not going to take you back. You're done. Now you got to figure it out, and your family needs you, and your children need you, and you know your mother needs you." Um you know, it chokes me up talking about it now, but I got through it, I got, and here I am, way stronger than I've been in, in probably in my life. Um, and you know, I don't. I think I'm stronger today than I was three weeks ago. So the mental health aspect of it is there even for people. And we don't even realize that you're suffering. Nobody knew when I was going through my divorce, other than some guys that I worked with and my really close friends and family, number one, none of them hardly knew really truly my feelings. But number two, the public never would have known what I was going through. My Facebook didn't show a negative thing ever. None of nobody else's business. To them, oh, he's just a happy-go-lucky fireman, you know? when I was instead I was drinking or I was this and you know, or I was, or I was running around with the wrong women or whatever it was. It now we know there's mental health care. And once I really seeked it out, not saying I'm fixed because I'm prone to errors and I'm prone to dumb decisions or whatever it may be, but I'm in such a different place, you know, with just, just, more settled, happier understanding of why you make the dumb decisions you make or the hurtful decisions you make, you know, um, it's all there. And in the fire service, we a lot of people put us way up on that pedestal and it's easy to get full of ourselves. And yet we're not telling them the truth because we're lying to ourselves. We're lying to others because we don't want to lose that credibility, that credentialing that they've given us of being the hero status. And now we're, really inside our own heads were shit you know how to juggle that whole thing you know um, like I said for me the EAP program was a big deal I talked to a friend yesterday who's who a firefighter uh, in another department in another state and he said I'm looking at the EAP program I just got to find somebody that matches me and and I'm proud of him because he knows there's issues he's got to address them you know
0: yeah well well thank you so much for sharing that because I mean we need to hear from people like you people that are respected people that are you know viewed as alpha male or females that's why when i have you know navy seals pull their heart out on here or whoever it is you know fighters it's it's reprogramming the bullshit that you and i were told as young boys which is you know oh you're supposed to be rambo you know you don't cry and you said even with the with the the suicide thing saying pussy it's like You know, when people talk about the ones that have completed suicide and how they were cowards, it's like, no, when you understand the psychology behind what happens to the human brain, especially with our profession, with sleep deprivation, the wiring is so screwed up. And I've had this from people that have survived their own attempts. They thought they were a burden and it was a selfless act to pull that trigger. You know, so, you know, we, we talk about suicide but i think another big part and you touched on alcohol is is the addiction side i've lost three firefighters in this area to opioid overdose one i was hired with in my last apartment. you know the alcoholism you know as, as we touched on you know that was what ended up taking ej's life um you know and it's it's kind of sometimes it's kind of brushed under the rug but we need to drag that into the fucking spotlight and say no this is what's going on we are drinking away our sorrows and that's not addressing it and even when you mentioned about the the fitness absolutely obesity and mental health are tied if you look at america there's a lot of very unhappy people and the obesity might have come first the mental health issues might have come first but those two are completely interrelated and if we're going to have a high functioning fire department and have resilience on the fire scene we have to address the mental health for that side and look at it as a positive tool that makes us perform better but if we hide from mental health and think it's a weakness, think it's being a pussy, then we're going to keep burying our men and women, which is completely unacceptable.
1: Absolutely, and and
0: now, with there's such a
1: spotlight on mental health in the fire service and, and emergency services, and, and I'm sure in the military as well with their high rate of suicide. Um, thank God we have it. Uh, you know, I, I. It's funny because you know you hear well. Fire service ain't what it used to be. It's not like it was when I was young. I feel sorry for these young guys coming in, young girls coming in. They, they don't have it like we do, uh, so they're not going to fires like we do. But they, they've got better tools and technology to deal with everything, the fire side of it, and life. And we didn't have that. We just didn't have it. And and it's why we. That's why you know the joke in the firehouse is, oh, you haven't had a divorce yet. You're not a real fireman. You know, I mean, I heard that not long ago and a, a kid who was engaged and they're like, Oh, boy, you <laughs> like, come on, man. Thanks, give this guy a shot." You know? <laughs> and then I said to him, I said, geez, everything, all you're hearing all our divorce stories, you poor guy, dude, don't, don't believe half the shit we're telling you. But, um, but truly we've got the tools, you know, my son becoming a fireman. Now he's, he's being offered. They, in the beginning of probie school, they, they had some mental health people come in and talk to them because they need to know what they're getting into and that they have help. Um, I got a dear friend, uh, Steve Gillespie, he's a retired FDNY lieutenant who went to North Charleston. EJ got him to go to North Charleston, right? Steve had gone through everything and he could tell his story to you and you would, it would fit perfectly. Um, he could tell far better than I could, but he's been through every type of thing prior to nine 11, after nine 11 and it throughout recovery and, he, he teaches a program now, and I don't even know if you would call it teaches. He shares a program uh, basically called Surviving the Job. And now he's down in North Charleston as a training coordinator in, in their fire department. And he's part of the Low Country Mental Health Group and, you know, his firefighter peer support team. And, you know, the stories he told me have helped me cope with my life and make me better at what I do and more understanding of my firefighters and you know, we talk about the alcoholism and, and we talk about EJ and, and I know I'll go off on all kinds of tangents in this, at this point, but you can rein me in. Um, So EJ was, is, was one of my, my dear, dear friends. um, EJ Mascaro. I miss him every single day. The guys from on scene miss him every single day. Um, You know, I've, I've, Got a tattoo that's an EJ tattoo. I'm, I'm, I hopefully I'm never gonna have to put another memorial tattoo on, but it was, it's still healing for me when I look at it. Um, and EJ was a, a military operator, a high-end ranger who did a lot of stuff, you know, Bronze Star, multiple Purple Hearts. Uh, we were doing a live burn in, in Reading, Pennsylvania one time, and EJ comes out and says to me, dude, I can't take the heat in my foot anymore. I said, what do you mean the heat in your foot? He goes, the freaking shrapnel that's still in there is really starting to heat up through my booth. <laughs> you gotta You guys got to do something about those fires underneath me. He are burning the hell out of the basement and he was on the first floor or something. And I, I didn't know he had shrapnel in his foot from, from the war, you know, from Iraq. And uh, I'd known he'd been shot, but I didn't know what all else. So he was that guy. And um, I've always felt he was the future of the fire service. I felt he was one day going to take the operations of on-scene training over from me when I was old and decrepit and couldn't do it anymore. And um, he was teaching with Bobby Halton. He was teaching with Mike Dugan. I mean, two legends in the game. They saw the potential of what EJ was and what he brought to the table from his military time. But EJ had his demons as we all do. And he was a hard charger. And I don't know that he was drinking to kill the pain of war or kill the pain of the fire service he was a fun guy and he wanted to have fun and he was going to live his life and he was going to live it fast and hard because, listen, he beat a lot of bad things. He saw lots of death and he overcame it all. So I don't know that his mentality was, you know, I got to suppress all this pain and, and, you know, I mean, EJ was one of the first guys that responded to the, the people killed at the church in Charleston. And he told me the story about, he shared it with me and, and with us and, um, so he had seen it all, and, and he, was, he was right there when, um, God, the name uh, Russ, can't think of his last name, uh, Medal of Honor recipient, was blown up, a 19-year-old kid, blown up in a, in a Humvee in a, in a convoy, and EJ was a part of that. You know, So he'd seen it all, but the night he died, he was heavily intoxicated with two good friends and hundred miles an hour into a tractor trailer. And, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, Jimmy Crawford, Jim Crawford's retired chief in, from Pittsburgh is now the ops chief down in Pawleys Island, South Carolina. And he was like a, a father to, to EJ. And EJ was certainly like a son to Jimmy. And, um, Jim is a very serious stoic person. Not that he can't be the funniest ball buster I've ever met, but, um, when Jim calls you at 3.30 in the morning and you look at your phone, you know it's not going to be good. And uh, he called me and gave me the news that EJ was killed. And um, My life has never been the same since that night. Good, bad, and indifferent. I, 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 I was blessed to give the eulogy at his memorial in Charleston. Um, I couldn't be at his funeral in Erie, Pennsylvania, where they laid him to rest, where his, his original hometown. I was actually teaching in American Samoa, and um, it was crushing to me. And then then, again, it's very emotional to lose somebody of that quality. I talked to him that night, told him, "Dude, take an Uber if you guys are pounding him. Take an Uber." And uh, and he, oh yeah, yeah, you know I will, you know I will, and hopped in the car, and the rest is history. Um, And he had gone for mental health. He was taking Vets to get mental health care because he knew how important it was and he had been seeing a therapist and I I know he had been on meds to take care of things and help him ease it a little bit, but the booze got him that night. The fast living got him that night. And, um, you know, you know, a lot of us will never quite, you'll never fill that hole. Um, and then later in the year, um, another one of the on-scene instructors, a guy named PJ Johnson, uh, who was, again probably one of the most brilliant people i've met in my life he was a ship captain uh licensed to sail the 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 largest ships in the world he'd worked the bering sea he'd worked um the uh the 9 11 boat lift with the tugboats in new york harbor pj was a big part of that Uh, when you watch that again i think it was on discovery or pbs they had the thing about the the boat lift on 9 11 pj was a huge part of that um great fireman uh call fireman in Kittery, Maine, and was the harbor master and one of the harbor masters in Portsmouth Harbor and in New Hampshire. Talked to him on Friday, a bunch of us talked to him. We were gonna have a meeting on Monday to discuss a project we were all working on. And Saturday morning he was involved in a unbelievable car crash on the highway. Um, his Audi went hundred and some miles an hour into a bridge abutment and that was the end of that. Um, Never left a note. Never said he was committing suicide. To this day, you know, there's no real documentation that that's what occurred. Um, there's speculation, um, but it's same thing. The happy-go-lucky guy, the guy who was the life of the party, one of the funniest sons of bitches you ever meet, um, and it and it something happened. Something clicked, and. Um, Later on, we found that there was some, there was probably some things in in his, uh, actually in his genes, heredity, that might have involved mental health. So we just don't know. But um, without without these things happening, my life would have been different. I know that. The loss of these people, and such great, amazing men, have affected hundreds of people maybe thousands you just don't know the far reaching effects as you said when I thought about suicide I thought I was gonna really kind of be doing the honorable thing in a way because I would take that away from my kids and my family the embarrassment would be gone the it would just go and, and when you're in that clouded screwed up thought process you, you just you know, it's bad. And like you said, sleep deprivation and not eating properly and, and drinking and, and the, the drugs. I personally haven't seen the abuse of the drugs in my circle of friends, so to speak, or in my realm as much as the alcohol. And and I still drink. Don't get me wrong. I'm my girlfriend and I are going away for a week next in two weeks. And I can tell you, I'm going to throw some back and relax, but not drink to kill the pain drink because it's an enjoyable thing socially with that person not to get hammered and you know forget about things um, and you have to know your limits um, I work with a fireman uh, and, and we have a great program in Jersey with the FMBA again where we can get help immediately for our guys if, if we know about it and get them either into an in treatment or an out treatment whatever inpatient outpatient um, and you know, we've, we've had this issue with on-scene instructors. Hey, listen, man, if there's a drinking problem, I told one of my guys that went on a trip with us last year, because I know that he's on the wagon. When he's off the wagon, he's got issues, and, and it affects the world badly. But he's on the wagon. He's been doing great. He's one of the best family men, an absolutely amazing instructor and fireman. I'd crawl down any hallway with him. Um, but I told him when we were going, listen, the fact that you're going, I'm not going to tell the guys they can't have a beer after class because, it, you know, if that's the case, then you. Pro- I don't want to affect all of them. But I'll tell you this. If you tell me it bugs you, I will not drink. I'll drink water with you for the week that we're away. I don't need it. You know, I enjoy a cold one after the, you know, dirty beer after teaching. But otherwise, and, and you know, he say, he goes, Nah boss, I'm good. I'll, I'll have no duels and I'll be fine. And the whole week we were away uh, other than missing his kids, you know, like any of us would, he was fantastic. You know, it, it, he learned, he, he went went to counseling, got therapy, and in the process learned really good coping mechanisms and is still using them. And I'm sure every day is a battle, but the mental health aspect, and especially as chiefs and officers, we have to promote it to our people. And we have, to, they, they, we have to remove that stigma. There cannot be a stigma to this because otherwise we're going to have more kids without their moms and dads. We're going to have more fire departments that are crushed. Um, you know, I said I'm, I'm done putting memorial tattoos on. I'm, I'm, I'm big on tattoos. Uh, I know that, you know, sometimes some guys don't like that. Tough shit. They're mine. <laughs> it's my therapy. Um, but uh, nobody wants to go through that again. You know, and it, and it happens every day. It's still happening. I, um, I just I know of a chief out in, a volunteer chief out in Wisconsin who a few weeks ago took her life. And I taught in classes with her and, and classes she was in, went to dinner with her one time at FDIC, a beautiful person and, and super intelligent and wonderful family that, as far as I knew, um, and who knows what she suffered from, but she took her life, and it's just,
0: it's unbelievable,
1: you know? And, and it's its avoidable, it's avoidable, we can help these people.
0: That's exactly, that's what I was gonna say. So, what I think we need, the next shift, we, we've got the awareness part now, the stigma I think is, you know, in a lot of places it's starting to come down, but the next thing is, well now what? You know, who are the counselors that we can trust? You know, what are the, the, the treatments that work for some people? But what I've learned from doing this, um, you know, is is there are definitely common denominators. It's not complicated. It's just being aware of them. Sleep deprivation, absolutely huge. You know, that's why the rangers, as you know, we mentioned earlier, use that in their selection process. That's why interrogators use it to interrogate people because it destroys the the mind. Um, then you have childhood trauma. That's something that a lot of people don't talk about. But you know, I've got a good friend Chad who um, I wrote about, kind of a. I, I um fictionalize his name but i wrote about him in the book that i wrote um who was also in the army but he was abused as a child so he went to huge crisis alcoholism you know near suicide And it wasn't so much what he saw in this profession. It was what he brought into the profession. So that's another thing we don't talk about. The risk aversion. So many people I've heard in the military and police and fire have said, look, some of the guys you, you look as heroes, as fearless, they're not. They're probably in mental health crisis to the point where they don't care anymore. That is a huge red flag. You know, if you are driving at 100 miles an hour, You know, there's, there's a reason for that, you know, so, but there, as you said, there are solutions. And if we looked at saving our brothers and sisters the way we train so diligently for saving strangers, we would start making a difference. So rather than ridiculing clean cab, look at all the people you lost from cancer honor their fucking memory and actually start taking it seriously. You know, there's nothing heroic about wearing dirty gear and smelling like a structure fire and blowing snot out in the shower. You know, there's, there's all these things that we can affect. But like you said, there's also that humility. You have to be humble and realize that the image of a firefighter, the Kurt Russell in your spank bank is not <laughs> reality. You know, we, got a, right. we are human beings and we have to create an environment to not only save strangers, but save our men and women in our station as well.
1: 100 percent it, it, it and and we know the mode the modes there we have the ability to do this it's just a matter of taking the initiative just like you said I, I may not be a clean cab guy but i am absolutely a wipe down clean everything you know throw it out there to our friend tanya get your responder wipes and wipe <laughs> it down man like i i had you know i was always one of them i got a burned up helmet on my on my shelf right next to me here uh you know i was the dirty gear the black snot And now I pray I don't get cancer for what I did years ago. Um, And then I've heard guys, the young guys, well, you know, that's that's what it was. Well, shit, fires were cleaner back then than they are today. So, yeah, take care of yourself. Exactly. And and I'm I'm in my 50s. I'm 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 in the twilight of my career, so to speak. I I, I hate to face that, but I am, you know, 37 years in this business, 31 career. I know that it ain't going to last forever at this point. But I'm still using a wipe after I go do a burn or after I've been in a fire because if that – maybe that helps protect me and I don't get cancer even though I put all this shit in my body years ago. You know. So I'm still going to take that preventative maintenance now because now I know better. Same thing mentally. Now we know better. You know, the, the, you're right. I think the stigma is really, really down because the unions have done a great job, the National Volunteer Fire Council – Uh, Guys like Jeff Dill with his organization out of Arizona uh, who are tracking all the suicides and are really uh, offering firefighter behavioral health. Um, Even the fools groups, you know, when we started having suicides that were affecting the fools when Billy, uh, Billy two dogs out out in Billy Lewis out in uh, Sacramento, you know, it struck the fools pretty hard. Like, Hey we got to do something and they they reached out to mental health professionals and they, they had a they, there's a hotline there you can call you know so the help is there now we've we've acknowledged it. it's just a matter of going and doing it and usually the people who are suffering unless you come to some the light bulb comes on you may not go for that help until it's too late or it's you know it's tough it's really tough Again, I'm not a mental health professional. There's so many people who are so much more in tune with this and brighter than I'll ever be. But I know what I my personal struggle was, and I know what some of my friends' struggle is, and it's the last thing, you know it, it scares the hell out of me. You know I don't want I don't want it to happen to anybody I love again. I, mean, I don't want it to happen to anybody, but God forbid I had the opportunity to intervene and help someone.
0: Absolutely. Well, that's why I started this project. I lost six firefighters in two years from cancer, autoimmune disease, heart disease, suicide, overdose. So there is no one thing that kills them. You know, this this job kills us from all different angles. But I think, you know, just like you said, with with the clean cab, you know, again, this this, I'm not talking about clinically sterile, but yeah. Being a tillerman for several years, I know I can throw my pack on in you know six seconds. So having the pack outside and not fumble fucking with it on the way to a fire with my seatbelt off, it just makes sense to me. So there's, as like I said, there's there's not blaming our forefathers because you didn't know better. But now we have the education. Now we have to actually get that stigma from all that other stuff too. And anything that's going to improve our health, prime events, whatever it is. Don't Mm -hmm. look at it as, you know, rolling your eyes and you're too cool to use, you know, carcinogen protection. Actually be smart so, as you said, you can actually have a fruitful career and enjoy, you know, the fruits of your labor.
1: Yeah. I was at a fire the other night and uh, I had an OV on the front roof taking front windows. Young guy who's never been in that position. He was an engine guy his whole career so far. In our new fire department we just created, we blew it up. 133-guy department and we moved. Every guy and gal around the department, um, chauffeurs stayed in a lot of the same places, but for the rest of us, we're, we're in different seats and learning different jobs, and it's great, but there's a level of experience we, we lost by doing that. We need to re – now we're training guys in those seats, and uh, Jeff took the front windows, and he was really impatient up there. Chief, can I that, – that, that, no, wait, 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 wait till the line's in place. I know you're dying, and this thing's ripping behind that glass, but wait, and when he took the glass – and, and it's it's been something that's certainly a Northeast problem or not problem, but ROVs aren't usually mashed up. They just aren't. You know, you get on the side of the window, you take it, it vents, no big deal. And you've still got all your vision while you're working up there. This one, when he took it, he got a face full of shit, so to speak, water, glass, fire, smoke. And when he came down, I said, you know, you all right? Yeah. Yeah. Probably should have had a mask on, huh? Yeah. Lesson learned. It won't happen again. Yeah, chief. And I saw him do it. It was my own fault. Like, I was the OV on lots of fires that I did the exact same thing. But it changed. the wind changed. Everything changed. Boom. He took it. Lesson learned. It's not going to happen again. Now in training, we're going to have that conversation that we're going to try and prevent breathing that shit because one hot breath of that could kill you. And we know it. You know, uh, Trenton had a firefighter die that way. Not that many years ago. So, um, yeah, if, if, if we protect ourselves and especially the young guys, and if we can get them into this mindset, um, we've got some, some great people. If we can get them into not the safety culture bullshit because you're still a fireman. You got dirty, snotty, nasty job to do. You go in and you do it. And that's that. But when you come out, you wipe yourself off. You know, when you come out, you, you actually get your blood pressure taken, which we used to all hide from rehab. Nobody will to do that. You know, let's let's take these steps to make your life long and productive, your career long and productive. You're still going to be a good, dirty, snotty, Paul crawling, you know, knuckle dragger, so to speak. But let's go home to our families and not bring that shit with us.
0: Absolutely. You know? Well, that's just it. I mean, you know, you hit the nail on the head the the job itself is still exhausting and filthy. And the complete, yeah. you know, organized chaos. But all you're saying is, as you mentioned, you know, don't grab all that shit and just throw it back in the cab. Don't, you know, like with the mask thing. Um, I had a captain when I got hired in Anaheim who right when I was there, he did exactly the same thing. Walked by a fire with no mask and ended up intubated. And he's actually yeah. the chief of Anaheim now. So he survived. But, yeah, I mean, that was a huge near miss for us right when I got through their front door. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, hindsight is twenty-twenty. So learn from it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, you'd mentioned about the new dynamic of the department. So that's something I want to make sure we talk about before we transition to some closing questions. So you were a chief in the previous dynamic, and then we had a similar thing happen here in Orange County, where I think it was eighty eighty nine. 89, I think they, a whole bunch of cities all became the county. Um, so what did that look like for you transitioning from that position to, is it deputy chief that you are now?
1: Yeah, I'm a deputy chief now. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, I grew up in the fire district system. In the Northeast, there's a lot of – New Jersey and New York especially have fire districts, taxing district. It's its own autonomous government agency basically, very similar to a school board or municipal utilities authority or something. So we had nine of those in Hamilton Township. Hamilton Township is 44 square miles. The last census showed us just under 100,000 people. I'm, I'm sure if you counted everybody who's jumped, swam, and you know crawled over here – our numbers are way different, um, but that's our census number, uh, and, and it's a very dynamic place. Everything from very, very wealthy farming community, well, once was a farming community, now it's, you know, million dollar homes on those places, to very, very urban rundown. Uh, we're right on the border of the city of Trenton, which is the state capital in Jersey, which is, is a very rundown, typical northeast city. Uh, So we have everything in between bedroom community to New York, to Philadelphia. um, And it's, it's a tremendous community. I I love working there. um, And we have the challenges of everything from mass transit, you know, high speed trains to um, uh, the Jersey Turnpike and every highway runs through us. You know, the old, the old joke is what exit do you live off off the Jersey Turnpike? So ours is seven a, and it's, it's a great place. Well, nine separate fire districts, nine separate budgets, labor agreements. I think we were probably in the twenties with labor agreements, all being represented by the same unions. Um, We were the definition of how not to do it administratively. Uh, Fire wise, we were pretty good. Uh, We go to fires. We do our job. We're aggressive. We, you know, and aggressive is not a dirty word in our department at all. We're, I, I, My opinion is I work with some really hard hitters, guys who will get it done, Um, and I'm really proud of the people I've worked with throughout my career, but we knew we could do a better job. The money is being wasted. We had nine fire districts with five fire commissioners per 45 fire commissioners getting paid something, and some of them were great. Some of them were in it for all the right reasons. Some of them were absolute pieces of shit, and I've told them that to their faces. Um, Totally just ego trip, taking money and screwing everybody. The system didn't work. We knew the system was failing. Certain districts were going broke. They didn't have the money to make the bills. They were short staffing crews. The whole thing was coming to a real shit show. Probably 10 years ago, we started the push that we need to consolidate. Five years ago, it got really, really serious. Um, And then we pushed it from the union side of it, which is rare because we were all making a lot of money. And in most cases, we had it easy, you know, job security, nobody really barking on your door. You know, it wasn't that bad, but we knew we could be better. So that's what we did. We um, we said, OK, we're, we're going to make a push. We made a pitch to town council that we wanted to consolidate. We either wanted one fire district or a municipal fire department. And we really made a hard charge towards it. We got to a point where to abolish fire districts in New Jersey, you have to go get signatures on petitions. 10 percent of your population in each district, I think I'm pretty sure that's the number, has to sign the petition. So literally we went out and beat the street and knocked on doors as a union and nobody was helping us. It was just our guys. And we ended up getting over five thousand signatures on petitions and doing this all off duty, of course. You know, and you weren't allowed to wear anything that said fire department, except the union shirt. Um, And we got five thousand signatures and brought it to council and said, all right, time to act. And then we got into a political battle with the council at the time who just kept jerking us around. And our union got to a point where we told them politically, listen, we're done. We, we're giving you everything. We're giving you the keys to the castle. We operate on millions and millions of dollars. We can streamline it. You can look like heroes as politicians. You're going to save you know, a million dollars right off the bat. You'll save it right away. Fire commissioner salaries alone, half a million dollars, you'll eliminate them. So we can give you this in a, in a nice package, all wrapped up pretty, and you'll look like heroes. And the council at the time just kept jerking us around and jerking us around and playing politics. And we, the union went to him one last time and said, do this now or we're going to come after you and you won't be on council anymore. And they told us that we were full of shit. And I give credit to our guys because – A lot of times we're a very splintered group. but Boy, when you tell us we can't do something, we can bind ourselves together pretty tight. And we went out and we got a really a bunch of unknowns elected to council and we flipped the council and we got three guys elected and uh, two guys and a lady. They got elected. And that was feather number one in our cap. Then we went to the mayor the next year and said, listen, elections are coming. We did it once. You're next. If you're not willing to make the move and she was really holding us up, um, you're, you're next. We're going to get rid of you, too. And she didn't believe us. Like, how <laughs> dumb can you be? We, we, we smoked your vote on council. How dumb can you be as a politician? But again, we talk about the arrogance. And this was someone who I had a lot of faith in at one time, came from a fire department family. So I thought she might take care of us. But now she was taking care of daddy's fiefdom at the time. So wouldn't do it. And we said, "Okay, we're going to back the candidate uh, and we're in his corner. We're going to do all takes. And we did it. And we flipped the mayor's office by I I think he won by three or four thousand seats. And at his number one at his inauguration day, but also the night of his victory. And even in the press, he said the fire departments flipped this without them. I couldn't have won nearly like this. Well, he made it happen. It took longer than we expected. But January 1, we became the Hamilton Division of Fire uh, under the township. And now we work for mayor and council, and we're hitting bumps. We are absolutely hitting bumps because now that we're one big organization, it ain't easy to turn a battleship. And that's what I think we are. You know, We're trying to turn a battleship in a bathtub at times, and we're slow, and we're clunky, and we're not always up to – understanding how the town works exactly so it's a huge learning curve we're six seven weeks into this thing now um so guys like me i was a chief of fire district nine i was running the whole show i did the hr i did you know they needed pension stuff taken care of i'm the one who dealt with the state they needed you know their doctor's notes taken care of i took care of all you know so that was it plus overseeing response and training and all that now I'm a deputy chief. I'm back on 2472s, uh, you know, best part-time job in the world. And uh, I, each, each deputy has been assigned a, a section that we oversee, so I oversee training. And we're, we're making progress. Um, we're not there. We're not where we want to be. We don't have as many companies as we want. We're already fighting with town. We've already fought with the council and mayor. Um, we filed a grievance on day one because the Pay periods were screwed up uh, and now it's fixed, but it's, again, at this point in my career, it's pretty cool um, to say you're part of something is one thing, but to be able to have influence over it, uh, like I said, I I can retire any moment. I have my time. I have 31 years at this point. I'm not making any more money in the pension. We don't have drop I'm in New Jersey, unfortunately, where I'd be rich, uh, but I love doing this and to be a part of it. And I work for a fire chief who is really, really a solid person and a great chief. He was, he's a tactician. He was a tremendous captain when we worked together. He was a great deputy chief and he's, he's honest, you know, where you stand. There's no bullshit. And he wants for the, for the guys, you know, guy or girl works, walks in his office in our job. He treats them the exact same as he would the mayor. You know, he's, just a good person to work for, and, and and the deputies I work for or work with, um, you know, we have our quirks. There's things we probably disagree about, but we're getting through them. And um, I'm just I'm blessed, man. I get to be a part of something new, something that 15 years from now I'm going to come back from my retirement home down by you, and uh, <laughs> and I'll get out. I'm gonna I'm gonna come up in the summer because I hate the winters now, and and look and and be really. Happy to see how well it's going for my guys, and uh, you know uh, it's it's an honor to be a part of something like that. I think you know. Yeah, yeah. How many of us get that opportunity in a life?
0: No, what I think that what's so important, you know, with you, what you guys did is again, you just you drew a line in the sand, and I think that's you know whether it's what we talked about early on, whether it's a toxic environment in your department, whether it's you know the the, the fitness or the mental health or whatever it is, is that. The phrase I use, I want to, with this podcast, I want to get people educated and angry. And I'm not looking to, to politic. I want to educate through people like you, through the guests to the point where they say enough is enough. And whether it's what you guys did where you actually unified, which of course makes sense and, and you banded together and you, you forced the hand of someone who was becoming a roadblock to progress. I think there's so much value in that in in many of the issues that we see in the fire service. Whether it's the work week, I keep getting said, "Oh, it's complicated." It's not complicated. You do exactly what you guys did. You show value over cost. You show how it's going to save lives. You know, the make uh, reduce lawsuits. All these things, and you just freaking make it happen. You know, and where you are, where you guys are, I say, look, the Northeast is doing the twenty four seventy two. That's what should be the profession gold standard in this entire nation is twenty four seventy two. So I love the fact that you guys, you know, bit down on your mouth guard and and freaking kept throwing punches because that's the philosophy I think a lot of us need to do. It's not complicated. It's not. Yes, it's going to be hard, but it's it's worth the fight. And I think that's the point.
1: It it was uncomfortable. It's still uncomfortable. I tell you, three weeks ago, I sat in my office and I talked to one of the other deputies who who happens to be the chief's twin brother. Uh, and another guy who I just have the ultimate respect for, and I told he said to me, he goes, "You're not right, man. What's going on with you?" And I said to him, I said, "I don't know my place. I feel weird here. I, I'm in a new firehouse. It's not. I don't have my comfort zone that I had for all those years. It's. I knew everything about what my old job was. Right now, there's days that I'm kind of. It's almost purgatory because I'm not in heaven, but I'm not in hell yet. You know, I don't understand what what it is and. And I was, I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was contemplating retiring, but it was in my mind that, like, you know what, this may not be my fit anymore. I may not, I may not have a spot here. Like, it just isn't. I'm not the right fit anymore. But then things changed a little. I got involved doing some things and and pulled my head back out of my ass after the couple of days of not feeling right. And and now I'm thrilled to still be there. But uh, yeah, you, you got to. We knew it was gonna be uncomfortable. Coming into this so many times the guys that worked for me in District Nine were like, We got it good, man. I'm not so sure I want this. And I would say to them, I know, we do. We are sacrificing. and District Nine we're sacrificing. We're gonna get a little pay raise, but our comfort level's absolutely gone. And we may work for people that are assholes at some point. And right now we work for great guys. So but this is all the growing pains and, and if we don't get out of our, our comfort zone, we're never gonna change. We're never gonna get better. And this this is a departmental thing. We can do a better job for these people who rely on us and for ourselves and our families. So let's do it. And I remember sitting in a union meeting. and One of the young kids, he was a hardcore Republican. Right, This kid is diehard. And we were fighting against the Republican regime. I grew up in a libertarian family and, and voted pretty much conservative my whole life. But this kid, we can't support the Democrats. Jesus Christ, that's the wrong thing. But, you know. And, and finally I, I got so tired of hearing it and I stood up and I said to him, I said, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, this, elections are local. It does, party line doesn't matter. Nobody cares what your party is. This is an election that's local. It affects us. I don't care if it was the Dems screwing us and we needed the Republicans because that's happened to us too. And I, I said to him, I said, here's the point I'm at. It. He, he kept saying, what if I lose my job? I said, you're going to lose your job anyway. If we stay in the old system, you're going to lose your job, dude. This thing won't survive, and you work for real assholes that are failing already. And I finally got to a point where I said to him, "I said, you know what? If they're gonna, if in the new fire department they start to lay people off, I'll take my papers. I'll put them in. I'll retire. You'll have your job. How's that?" He had nothing else to say. And then I thought to myself, "God damn! I hope they don't lay people off because I don't want to retire. <laughs> but i don't, but I'll, I'm never gonna go back on my word. That's the only thing I got, you know." Luckily, it all has progressed. And, and, you know, like I said, I hope that down the road, we are the role model for New Jersey and other places on how to fix this broken system that we worked in. And I know other places are doing it. That it's just to what level they're going to do it. But the guys have to understand comfort levels are going to change. And not everything we do is easy and comfortable. And if that's what you're looking for, again, this probably ain't the right profession.
0: Amen to that. Brilliant. All right. Well, I think that's the perfect place to transition. So before I get to the actual questions, tell people listening about on-scene training, um, the kind of diversity of the instructors, and, and what kind of areas that you guys teach.
1: So on-scene training is uh, – we started on paper in about 2005, I think. Um, we've got about 30, 30 instructors, girls and guys that we use. Um, they're from all walks of life. They, they are – You know, everything from FDNY, Chicago, you know, big cities to little volunteer towns. And even the guys who have taught for us from the cities started out in little towns and never forgot where they came from. And our goal is is really to provide real life, real scenarios, things we've lived, things we've done. None of the bullshit can programs that we've people read and You know, in books, you know, we're not if we're not those guys, we don't have to follow by that stuff and we never would. And that's what it is. We don't have a a script, you know, I don't, I don't write a bunch of lesson plans for on scene. Just don't do it. We write our burn plans. We follow 1403. We do what we legally have to do, but what the guys teach, that's on them. I've never told them, Hey, you should teach this method because this is the way we share you know what we do with each other when we're drinking beers and having dinner or sitting around the pool. But when they get out there and they start working, it's their lives, what they've lived, what they've done, their experiences. That's what on scene really is. And we've got, like I said, we've got guys who are in their seventies still teaching. We got a guy named Mike Clark and we have two Mike Clarks, but one is old Mike Clark and old Mike Clark is, I guess, 72, 73 years old. non vet, um, Marine, still a Marine, as you said, um, still fighting the war on certain days. Mike Clark go out today and and I guarantee he was in the gym this morning doing one arm pushups, right? This man is an absolute machine, led the special ops training for New Hampshire for many, many years, uh, still a part of Massachusetts task force one and just one of the greatest people I've ever met. And then we've got instructors, like I said earlier, Jenny Grima, Jenny, um, Works in St. Lucie County. She's on the job maybe five years, firefighter, paramedic, and has this ability to to teach people things differently than I ever could or differently than Mike Champo ever could. And Champ teaches with us, you know. But it's this diversity that's so cool, and we've got everything in between. So you've got guys in there literally from their early 30s all the way up into their 70s who are still providing great life experience, great fire ground experience. And it's the, we, we can do the full gamut. Um, I can tell you the one thing I will not offer up, we never offer up any of the man versus machine type stuff. Not that we don't have guys who've done it. I've done plenty of it myself working in a junkyard and, and in special ops my whole career. But there's guys who I feel that are really, really good at it. I, I defer to PL Vulcan. Anybody that calls me and says, hey, we need a, a man versus machine or... That kind of rescue class, I give him Mark Gregory's phone number, you know. Um, but other than that, and I stay away from a lot of the command and control stuff. If you want blue card, I am the last guy you want to talk to because it ain't happening. Uh, it just ain't happening. I believe in NIMS. I believe in Incident Command. I follow it very clearly, but that's not what on scene's about, you know. There's other people that teach that shit, not me. We're gonna teach you engine. We're gonna teach you truck. We're gonna teach you search. Um, we've got one of the top extrication guys, honestly, in the world on new vehicle technology. Carl Haddon teaches for us. Carl's a retired chief of safety for NASCAR. He lived it when NASCAR was becoming what it really was at the time, not what it is today. <laughs> but, uh, but he created their safety protocols. You know. So when it comes to extrication, I want to learn it from that guy, that guy who's really lived it. And, and he was a Cali guy. He was an Orange County guy many years ago. Um, he and I went out to Samoa and we taught surface water rescue. You know, the guy was a lifeguard in, in busy places, you know, and, and lives on a river that does swift water rescue now in Idaho. So they're not just bullshit guys who read it in a book or saw the slides and went, Hey, I can teach that now. Um, so really the full gamut, we stay out of some of the tech rescue stuff. Um, but we, we do, any kind of ropes and knots stuff. We can do any of the trench stuff, you know, high angle, low angle stuff. Um, and our guys are, they're task force members, but they're from all over the country and, um, they're genuine people. And I think that's the, uh, that's the bottom line with on scene. And we're in the, in the process of kind of not, I wouldn't say reinventing, but upgrading things a little bit. The website sucks right now. So we're getting ready to hire a new website guy and, I was on the phone the other night with all these guys and uh, Paul Combs, the the F, uh, um, you know FDIC keynote and uh, cartoonist. Many forget that he was a tremendous fireman and still is a tremendous instructor. He he comes out with us and uh, and and he's guiding me <laughs> on on the social media end of things that I'm not that smart about. You know, sometimes we Carl tells me all the time as firemen, sometimes we ask right-handed people to do left-handed things, um, social media, and that. Stuff is left-handed to me when I'm really a righty. So, uh, but that's that's on scene, and, and we've been blessed. We've been around a long time. We teach FDIC. We all our guys teach at all the big conferences, um, which you know I think has, has been great for us and for students. And um, it's a give a shit group. That's the key. And and we we never talk at you. We share. We learn. Um, like I said, I've been all over the country. Um, you know, we teach a lot in Louisiana. We found a little home in Thibodeau, Louisiana. That area. We've run conferences there. We're we're hoping to plan some more. Um, so again, it doesn't matter if you're big city, small town. We cover, and that's that's kind of the cool way I think that we do it.
0: Beautiful. So. And for people listening, where can they find the website? Uh, don't judge it, but the website right now is uh, <laughs> is uh,
1: www.onscene.training.com. Uh, Like I said, it's in the process. It will get upgraded and and really be different. Um, Also on social media, Instagram and Facebook, we post a lot of stuff on there, and our guys are constantly adding content to it, so uh, there's always cool stuff going on
0: beautiful beautiful well i hope i can take one of your classes at some point like i said it's slightly different now as a retired fireman i don't think i need like high-rise engine ops anymore so it's more <laughs> like i said extrication forcible entry you know that kind of thing um all right well then transitioning to some closing questions uh the first one i'd like to ask is there a book that you love to recommend it can be related to what we've discussed or completely unrelated uh yeah yeah
1: there's a there's a couple um so I really, really enjoyed um, the leadership books, uh, and I've read dozens of leadership books, but somebody gave me It's Our Ship way back when, and I think that's a really, really good book. Uh, I took a lot out of it, um, and I took a lot of the management style from that, and I think I've applied it and and tried to apply it as best I could to my situations. Um, I'll tell you right now, I'm reading... um, Jim Moss's book, Firefighter Success, and I think that is outstanding. I'm reading it really slowly so I absorb it all because it's really good. It's 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 written at a perfect level to understand it and to and I think you know a chief like me or or a probie like my son should read that book. And I think we can all gain from it. So that's something that I'm I'm really enjoying. Um, and and then I guess it's just what what turns you on tactically. Versus other things, you know, um, when I was studying for all the exams, <laughs> I read them all, you know, and, and uh, but I, I it just kind of those books stand out in my mind. Um, I, another great book as an officer I read was um, Lincoln Lessons on Leadership from Abraham Lincoln. And I just think that's just uh, I've got that on my shelf up here. And that's a great book. Um, and then really the military stuff intrigues me. For some reason, I've am I'm very I've always kind of drifted towards the World War II. Uh, maybe because I've spent some time in the Pacific on those islands, I, I kind of fall back to some of those books. Um, but the, that's just more of enjoyment. But you do take leadership lessons from it, for sure. And you can apply so much military stuff to what we do.
0: Absolutely. In many, many areas. That's the thing that I find frustrating with the fire service. Oh, there's no research in you know, subject X was like, well, the military's done it. So, you know, you, you don't have to be a genius to apply the research that they've done into our profession. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, what about a a movie and or a documentary?
1: Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I I don't know about a movie that applies to the job so much. Um, I will say that applying uh, something that applies to the job was glory. I took a leadership class years ago, an instructor named Eddie Kensler from National Fire Academy, uh, used to live up here, lives down south now. He he took clips of Glory and added that into our NFA class. Because, you know, an NFA leadership class can be a bit dry at times. Um, and he really spunked it up with that. And I I've watched Glory a few times. And for a fire chief and a fire officer, looking at the way the leadership was and and aspects of it that was pretty cool Um, So I really like that when it comes to that for sheer entertainment. I am a totally 12 year old brain with total sophomoric humor And you know I could watch animal house and fast times at Ridgemont and Caddyshack and airplane all day long and never get bored so you know it's uh it's it's uh, uh, Probably sad to admit that but
0: no, that's firehouse humor though. (laughs) Oh,
1: it's complete. I mean constantly you're repeating the lines in the rig. One of the biggest things I miss about being a captain is all the bullshit and banter in the rig. Like, you know, so many funny lines in it. And we'd use movie lines and a kid in the back who, you know, was born in 99, never heard of it. And he's like, I'd look back and go, oh, you didn't get that line. Watch airplane. we we throw Caddyshack shack on later and, you know, but, uh, yeah. So i trying to keep it light, I think is, is good, but I like action thrillers and, and, and that sort of stuff. Uh um, and I've, I've watched so many documentaries. God, I, I don't even know what my favorites would be, to be honest with you. It, it would probably all go back to military stuff. Um, I, I watch the, uh, AHC channel all the time. I think it's called American heroes channel or something like that. And it's just tons of great military documentaries. Um, and that's, you know, my girlfriend's over here all the time. And, and that's, I, I told her, I hope you don't get bored because these are things I like to watch. And, Tell me when you're sick of it. No, no, I like it too. Thank God because (laughs) I enjoy those.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh,
1: Yeah, I, I, and he'll be pissed when I say this, but Steve Gillespie, um, like I said, he's a retired FDNY lieutenant and, um, he has a strong message to deliver. Uh, one, of the, one of the best people I know, great fireman, he's really he's, he doesn't know it so much, but I mean, he's mentored me over the years. Uh, I know he's helping mentor my kid down south right now. And, um, but he has been through the wars. He has really been through the fire service wars and it's affected him personally and he's sharing that message. And um, I think there's a lot to be learned from a guy like that. And uh, not to mention, he's funny as shit, so he's really
0: entertaining. Beautiful. <laughs> so, where, where is yeah. he based? Where does he live now?
1: He lives in, in uh, North Charleston. South okay. Carolina.
0: Gotcha. Yep. Beautiful. Yep. But really good dude. All right. Yeah. Would, would you better make the connection? Absolutely. Fantastic. All right. We'll make yeah. it work then. All yeah. right. Well, then the last question before uh, we just make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress?
1: Ah, to decompress, I am, I am uh, a huge music fan. Uh, I have no musical ability. My dad tried to make me take piano lessons as a kid, and I hated it. And now I wish I had listened to him. I'm a big Jimmy Buffett fan. I like trop rock. I really like all music. But um, when we were allowed to go to concerts, you know, before this craziness of the pandemic, I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of Buffett shows, Um, whether it's because of the party or the music. I'm not sure which, but I like them both. Um, But really, really just exercising, getting in the gym when I need to, to blow off some steam. Uh, I like to read, to decompress, uh, and again, reading stuff that's not fire department related. And, um, and that's, that's really it, you know? Um, when I was younger, I loved coaching my kids and going to sports, and I still, when we can go to games again, I'll be down in Philly watching my Phillies play as much as I can, you know? But uh, uh, I love attending sports and, and watching sports on TV. So that's, that's kind of my decompressing. Uh, it, it, my Buffett ties run deep and strong. Um, my, my favorite line, honestly, about me is, he sings a song called Nobody From Nowhere, and I really feel that's what my career has been and how I got to where I am and, and know the people I know and just been fortunate to tag along and learn from them. It's just nobody from nowhere and just shut up and listen. You know?
0: Beautiful. You do come down Key West sometimes then?
1: yeah 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 may or may not be there in the next couple of weeks
0: oh really okay let yeah. me know if you're driving through i'm on i'm in ocala and 75 goes right through our town so i think Sounds i think good. Uh, yeah Sounds good
1: yeah Un- officially we may we may go visit my son in charleston in two weeks and then just take keep driving
0: week and then just keep
1: driving yeah. <laughs> might what have made the- some reservations
0: <laughs> brilliant brilliant all right well then the very last question you mentioned where um on-scene training is online what about yourself do you have any uh, instagram anything like that people can reach out to you
1: yeah yeah i mean i'm on facebook as aaron heller um on my instagram god i don't even know what it is let me look <laughs> how bad is that um aaron heller 3901 is my instagram um and 3901 is in a bunch of my stuff because that's my favorite engine that I've ever ridden in my life. And uh, so that's been in, in my email forever. And it's a 66 word France with a Cincinnati cab. They only made a few of them. So. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, look me up. I'd, I'd be more than happy to share anything I know, what little it is, and whatever I can do to help somebody. And if they want on-scene training, we're here.
0: Beautiful. Well, Aaron, I just want to say thank you so much. As I said before, um, you know, your career obviously is an entire thing in itself, but then you have what your department just did. And then you have obviously the you know, the, the physical and mental health journey that, that you've been in. Um, there's just so much value. And I think when we hear someone like yourself, someone that we admire in the fire service, someone who walks the walk, um, it just adds so much more power and so much more clout to that message. So I just want to say thank you for being so generous with your time. We've chatted for m- definitely more than an hour and a half as we talked about. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but um, but I think it's just, it's invaluable for people to hear. So thank you so much.
1: Uh, it, it's, it's an absolute pleasure and it really is an honor to be on here. I know the, the level of guests that you've had throughout this this process of yours and And to just be a little part of that, it really is, it's it's a fantastic opportunity. And and I enjoyed it and I, I really thank you for that. Really great.